Every successful collaboration of individuals shares certain attributes. Among these are planning an organization, financial and material resources, time, training, and good old-fashioned hard work. But the one thing that turbochargers all those others, the glue that binds an organization together and sharpens their efforts, is morale. Esprit de corps. Fellowship. The North American Wedding Conservancy is a collection of many dozens of folks spread across this continent and beyond the far corners of the world. Our centerpiece effort is an annual multi-month residency in the valley we call X, located in the Washtenaw Mountains of southeastern Oklahoma. The logistical challenges presented by this far-flung cadre means that the group is in many ways, and by necessity, virtual. It depends on platforms and technologies that enable large teams to coordinate and communicate. The NAWAC in its current form would not exist without the advantages of the modern age. But none of that can nourish the soul and build personal connections like an evening sitting around a fire singing songs, or lingering after a meal swapping stories most of us have already heard 50 times but that we convince ourselves we're telling again for the benefit of the newbies. Nothing beats simply being together and seeing one another and looking into each other's eyes, making that human connection with and between the men and women of the group, some of whom I've known for decades and who feel like family. I'm Brian Brown, and on this episode of our podcast, you'll hear a recap of our recent NAWAC member retreat. That's the time we reconnect and recharge and get excited for a new year of operations, when we recap the results and notable events of the previous season and strategize new tactics for the next. You'll learn what we're going to do differently in the summer of 2020 based on the things we discovered during the summer of 2019. And you'll hear first-hand accounts of several encounters with the furtive, hair-covered residents of Area X. This is the official podcast of the North American Wooded Conservancy. This is Apes Among Us. This episode of Apes Among Us. I'm Matt Pruitt, and I'm joined by my co-hosts Brian Brown, hello, and Brandon Lintz, hello. So I assume you guys made it home safely with the long, arduous drive back to Minnesota from the retreat that we just completed. Oh gosh, yeah, yeah. It was a long twelve hours having to sit next to Brian and talk to him and interact for a, a day and a half, but it was worth it. So you were just so ready to hop on this call and, and start chatting with him all over again. <laughs> I love hearing his voice. I've had my quarterly fill of Brandon. But anyway, yeah, here we are. Uh, and I will also throw a shout out to the uh, very nice uh, state trooper from the state of what, what state were we in when you got pulled over, Brandon? It was in Missouri. In Missouri. It was a nice guy. He just gave you a warning. That was cool. That was nice. Thanks. Shout out to Officer Smith. If you're listening, That's right, I, Officer Smith. I, I, I appreciate you. My assumption is he was a fan of the show. And when he knew it was us, he's like, oh, you guys can go. Yeah, my assumption is that he's listening now. Excuse me, sir. Do you listen to podcasts? Yes. Well, then you know who I am. <laughs> exactly. How long was your drive, though? You had a pretty good drive, too. Yeah, it's not terribly bad. It's it's about anywhere between eight and nine hours. It was closer to nine because it rained back the whole way. So I tried to gather my thoughts. You know, I, that's that's only my second member retreat. So I was kind of curious to hear your thoughts, Brian, since you've attended so many since the dawn of of those particular events. 
Yeah. You know, it was good. I can't, uh, I was really blown away by how many folks were there. We had a lot of people and that has to be, that has to be the biggest one. I, I just from, if you look at the sheer number of people that were there, uh, I, I don't know that we've had one that had, uh, more members attend. Uh, other than that, you know, the, the presentations were, were great. Uh, it's always good to hang out with folks and make that connection and, and see them and, and, uh, rekindle those friendships that you've had that have had to be virtual for, for basically a whole year and just getting ready for the new year was, was really awesome and super exciting. Do you know offhand, Brandon, how many member retreats you've attended or what number this was for you? I believe this was number four for me. How did it compare to previous years? I think it was the best one yet. And the biggest reason for that is there were so many new members mixed with old members that have been around for a long time. So there was a, a fresh enthusiasm that was flowing throughout the weekend that I really appreciated. What I love about it is just, especially on the heels of the training camp, I, you know, I attended both of those events. I know you did as well, Brandon. And even for people that just attended one, I mean, we've spent anywhere now from just about half a week to a full week with all of these members. And so that familiarity has just grown so much stronger. And there's not a single one of those people that I would feel like a stranger with at this time, which is a huge benefit. I think a notable difference between this retreat and previous ones uh, is also the time of year that it happened. Normally, we do these in the fall. We do them uh, pretty much just uh, you know a month or so after the end of our operations, whatever the operation was for that summer. But this year, we moved it and we did it in February, which is uh, very different. So the the weather was very different, um, and just the the amount of time that it transpired from the end of the operations was was not the same as usual. So it was just also interesting doing it then. And I think that's one of the reasons why we had Brandon because we weren't doing it in the middle of hunting season. Right. We had been holding them in November for the past two, three years. And because it was in November, that's at the same time that the Minnesota deer hunting season takes place. So I haven't been able to attend for a couple of years. So that we held it in February was a big benefit for me. No, another distinctive memory I have of past events that we didn't have this year was that they very often are happening during uh, baseball postseason. <laughs> so there's always <laughs> like some kind of baseball game going on in the background that we're all paying attention to. But this year, there was no no baseball at all. Yeah, it seems really beneficial to do something like this before the launch of the season because it serves a purpose of not only motivation. So we're reviewing last year's data and we're learning from mistakes that we've made or opportunities that we had or things that we could take advantage of. And all of that is informing what we're going to do next year. But it also serves to motivate and build up motivation. So I think this should kind of be the precedent. Also, the other benefit is that these people are getting to know each other and there's you can tell who gravitates toward who because, for example, you guys make these trips together. You live very far from our area of operations and you live close together. And so it's kind of a given that you'll be on teams together because it's easier. You can see that forming in these other uh, members as well as they're starting to kind of collect in their small teams, even in an event like this months before we actually launch. So I think it'd be great to do that prior to the launch every year. Yeah, I'll be curious to see the difference between doing these things uh, in the previous year when you're further away from the operation versus doing them like this. Obviously, as, as you point out, uh, you get a lot more excited because you know that they're it's not that far away. You know, the, the first teams will be going in in just a couple of months. But that also means you only have a couple of months to get everybody ready. So I'll be curious to see you know, how, it, how it ends up. But I, I do think that uh, I liked doing it in, in February and, and hopefully we'll we'll find that we can keep doing it that way. 
you know, I was having a blast there and I know we were getting engrossed in conversations and telling stories and answering questions of new members and catching up, but we all found time to pull away and, and break off and get some segments recorded. And as I've been editing these and preparing them for release, it's been really exciting to listen back to them. So I, I can't wait for people to hear this episode. I guess the crux of it would be that, you know, we were down there in the Valley for a total of 70 days in the operation. We had seven visuals. And so most of what you're going to hear will be a discussion of those visuals. It does seem like a high average because it's about one sighting per every 10 days, but that's roughly 100 seconds of visual observation out of nearly 1,700 hours of on-site investigation there. That is a point that I've tried to make in the past when we've had these conversations uh, in, in the, at the retreats when we've talked about the, the previous year's operations. It, does, it would sound to someone from the outside who maybe isn't really familiar with our work that, gosh, these guys go down there and they see wood apes behind every bush and they're always bumping into them. And you would think that if they're really there by now, they would have collected one. But that point, I, mean, I think those stats are pretty consistent. I mean, the, the, the numbers of sightings, the, the duration of them especially is, is not very dramatic. So you have to wait for exactly the right kind of encounter to be able to accomplish the ultimate mission of the operation. But, uh, yeah, it, it is, it's really striking when you look at it that way that, you know, basically a minute and a half out of all of those days spent down there divided up amongst all the different people who saw them. That's not a lot of time. What we're doing essentially is pulling together the highlights out of 10 weeks worth of operations. And I was thinking about these stats and comparing them to, say, a nature documentary like Planet Earth, for instance. Have you guys seen that scene in Planet Earth 2 where the baby iguana has to escape all of the venomous snakes that are trying to eat it? Certainly. That's great. That took two weeks to film. And those producers sat there and filmed the same exact spot for two weeks on end, sun up until sundown, until they were able to catch that scene. They made that poor iguana run in front of those snakes for two weeks. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it was exhausted by the end, but it was worth it for entertainment value. Absolutely. I, I was thinking as you were saying that, that, you know, we could have done a podcast where we just talked to people and interviewed them about the days and hours spent where nothing happened whatsoever. But that would be not nearly as interesting for everyone. Speaking of that, we all got a chance as hosts to pull aside these members that had these visuals. And so let's tell the listeners a little bit about what to expect. So, Brian, you spoke with a few different members, correct, about their observations? Yeah, sure thing. I spoke to Alton Higgins and Jay Souther about a fascinating uh, thermal imager uh, visual that they had. So they were able to uh, watch an animal through thermal and their account is both fascinating but also frustrating, as, as you will find out when you hear it. Uh, I also spent some time talking to Ed Harrison, who is on our board of directors, about some exciting new technology we'll be deploying this year. I got a chance to speak with Daryl Collier and James Rester, who had the longest observation of the operation this year through thermal imaging units. And I think their observation was fantastic. It's really insightful. The thing was coming right to the edge of camp. So I can't wait for people to hear that. And then I also spoke with Alton Higgins and Phil Burroughs about what I would consider to be two different daylight sightings, likely of the same individual that constituted the first sightings of the actual operation. Brandon, I know you spoke with some members about sightings, including one that happened right before the operation, correct? Correct. I was able to speak with a few people. I spoke with Mike Mays, who did not have a direct visual encounter with a wood ape, but he did experience and record a novel, unique behavior that we have never recorded before. So that's a very interesting story that I think that listeners should be excited about. I spoke with Dusty Haithcote about a visual that he had over the summer. 
But to start it off, I got together with my friend Chad Doris to speak with him about a intense experience that we were both in Area X for, and that was actually before the summer operation had officially started. That was in May of 2019. So a couple notes before we get into the interview with Chad. We did have a total of eight direct visual encounters with wood apes, but two of them we had already spoken about previously on the show, and those can be found on the November team episode, which I believe is two shows prior to this one. So coming up next, we have that interview with Chad Doris. It is currently 7 o'clock at night, and my good friend Chad Doris and I are sitting out somewhere in the Wachita National Forest, sitting on a hill. And I wanted to sit down and talk with Chad because he had an incredible experience during Operation Variance. Chad, thanks for joining us today. Thanks, man. Thanks for having me. Chad and I, we went down to Area X over Memorial Day weekend last year. It was just a quick three-day jaunt. I had one day off over Memorial Day, so I got a hold of Chad and said, okay, let's go spend it in Area X because any time in Area X is a good time. The first day we get down there, I bring him to a abandoned cabin that's about a mile or so away from our base camp. And we're just there milling around. And this is Chad's first time in this location that we operate out of. So I'm basically giving him a tour, showing him the ropes. And on the way back to base camp, I decide to implement a leapfrog mechanism. And I've talked about this on the show before, but for those who have not heard, a leapfrog mechanism is where you take teams of two or more people and one person starts down the trail while you wait for, say, two minutes, three minutes. You decide on the time beforehand. That person walks down the trail for two or three minutes, stops. You get up, start walking down the trail for two or three minutes, and as soon as you pass that person who is now sitting on the trail they start their clock. We do this because we believe that the apes have a hard time keeping track of multiple people at once. And it has resulted in a lot of activity before, so we decided to give it a shot. And on one of these leapfrog mechanisms, Chad had something very interesting happen to him. It's my turn to sit and count, and you had gone down the trail. And I don't remember what we were counting to or how long we have been counting, but I have been sitting there for a while. And I was facing north just sitting on a rock maybe i don't know what 15 20 feet off the trail maybe not really hiding just kind of sitting down and i heard like a galloping sound like to my southwest but way, way, way far behind me i took note of it but i kept counting and i don't know maybe a minute later or so i heard it again but like more directly behind me what did it sound like almost like almost like a gallop like a horse gallop you know like almost kind of sort of but i could it was on the i don't know it was it was a ways away you know i didn't pay much attention to it and then it got closer behind me, and I, I looked over my shoulder, nothing there, wouldn't really worried about it, kept counting, and then the brush behind me broke and started moving, and something was coming right behind me, I don't know, maybe 25, 30 yards behind me, pretty quick in, and, and probably closer than that, but uh, I thought, Mama Bear, you know, Mama Bear's coming after me, or something like that, so I, uh, as soon as I heard it, I jumped up and spun around, and I had a three three seven on my side, and I went to grab it and pull it out, and... And that's when I laid eyes on what it was, and, it, you know, it wasn't a bear. What I saw was just a, I don't know, maybe 5'10", 5, 5'11", 5, wouldn't really be, maybe your size, you know, maybe your height. Um, upright, jet black thing. 
Um, I didn't see any arms moving. I didn't really notice the legs like jogging, just bolted directly at me, making all kinds of noise. And it's a pretty open area, so I got a. I would have had a good look at it, but it was so fast. And then when it, when I stood around and I got fully upright, it immediately stopped and turned, which would be uh, east, and just pew, just shot off, without making a sound or. It literally just sped off so fast. I I lost track of it. You know, my eyes were glued to this alpha predator, what I you know what I perceived to be, and then it was just gone. It stopped turning. It was pew. that was it. I I find it funny that you're still calling it a thing and calling it <laughs> it because what else could it have been? It will always be it, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, other than our target species. And that was going to be one of my questions to you uh, on this interview: is that. How long did it take you, first of all, to realize that it was a wood ape and it, the wood ape was uh, running at you? A second. I immediately turned around and went, you know, either I'm thinking that noise behind me is bear or ape, right? We mm -hmm. hope it's ape, always, right? Well, and if it's running at you, you <laughs> hope it's something really innocent and cute and fuzzy. <laughs> I mean, it was fuzzy, but, uh, um, I mean, as soon as I saw that it was, you know, upright and, you know, moving on what seemed to be two legs, I was like, oh, yeah, this is clearly, you know. Mm -hmm. But it was... You know, I didn't get a really good look at it. Just it came and went so fast, but it was directly in front of my face. It was just jet black and moved so quick. So you got up, turned around, and you had your sidearm on you at the time, mm -hmm. yes. and you tried to unholster your sidearm. Yep. Right. And when that happened, the thing just sort of disappeared. Yeah. I mean, it it, it stopped like seemed to be on a dime, like from jetting straight at me and just just shot off to one way towards your direction. You know. Mm -hmm. And I remember thinking, well. It's going that way, Brandon. I'll hear it or see it, right? Obviously, and knowing what we know and what these animals, that's the dumbest thing I could have said, right? <laughs> or thought. But uh, I thought, oh, well, Brandon, I'll find it. And then, you know, you didn't. <laughs> it never made its way to you, or I don't know where it went. You know, I was nervous. I just seen what I shot. Shock of my life. Um, I'm moving pretty quick. I'm running. Um, it's just about dark. And I remember at one point, I kind of had to stop, and I threw my bag off my back and threw it on the ground, started digging through it. And then I swear I thought I heard the thumping again, like the galloping sound, which now I think was the animal at the time I didn't put them together. But I thought I heard that sound again, and I was like, you've got to be kidding me, right? <laughs> I'm wet. I'm soaked in sweat. I'm exhausted. I've literally been running down this creek bed, like trying to get back to you. But I know I'm not far from camp. I'm, you know, less than a quarter mile at best, you know. But it was dark. It was getting dark, and that was concerning. Honestly, do you think that you may have been in a state of shock because of what had just occurred? I was thinking the animals would come back again. Yeah, it, it was a little concerning on both of our parts for, for a minute, but we finally connected again. Yeah. And as soon as I saw Chad, his face was Evident. ghostly, and I could tell that something had happened to him. So what I did <laughs> is I immediately pulled out my phone and I started recording his thoughts and details of the incident. And we try to do this as often as we can and as quick as we can after right we have away. any visual sighting because you want to get all of those details while they are fresh in your memory. So I pull out my phone and I start recording Chad and he starts relaying to me what happened to him. And as he's doing this, he's twitchy, he's stuttering, he's shaking, he can't get his words out, he's yeah. out of breath. And I love watching this video because you can tell that Genuine. something genuinely shocking had just happened to you. <laughs> yeah, that's that's right. I think all I could say to you when I finally saw you and I was sliding down the hill after you, I think, it worked, it worked. I think that's all I said. <laughs> it worked. <laughs> Yeah, it was, you know, it was a concerning moment for sure, but I wouldn't take it back for anything. It was, you know, 
So circling back to the actual bluff charge, when you turned around, could you glean any other detail of the animal? Could you tell color, shape, size? It was jet. It was a pretty open area where it kind of happened, but there's a lot, you know a lot of you know, tree cover up top. So it was jet black. It was dark as dark can be. You know, mm-hmm. was, I didn't. I couldn't see a face. I couldn't make out. It's like if someone made it, took a poster board of like an ape. You know, like the one I saw, and, and just colored it black and just shot it directly at me. It's kind of what I saw. I didn't see any, like, you know, arms moving or head bobbing or, or legs, like, scissoring as it's running towards me. It's just like it just, shh, like, came directly at me, you know, like, on a track almost, you know? Like, what, what we always hear each other say. Exactly, you know? and I, that's what I was just about to say is that we've heard that on the track descriptor from so many witnesses within our organization yeah. that it, it just solidifies your legitimate sighting for me because the the ape that mark and i saw it looked like it was on the track and that thing was running through woods with all kinds of rocks and green briar and branches in its way and it was Mm -hmm. boundless it was smooth as can be yep yep that's where this thing was and i said it was quick but it made as much noise as it could to alert me and then as soon as i like turned around and saw it it just turned the sound off with some type of magic you know and just it disappeared just shot off so fast i couldn't keep my eyes on it so something really special about this sighting other than having a wood ape sighting and it running at you which is very special and unique in itself chad had a couple of really rough summers previous (laughs) to this one can you explain why uh one i had a baby the summer before and that was really rough uh (laughs) um, my wife did i didn't but i imagine that's rough um and uh Last summer, I had cancer, so <laughs> I had to, um, I had chemotherapy and some surgeries, and you know, I had to lay in the hospital bed and look on the form and see what you guys were doing down in the woods for me. You know, yeah, it was it was you know it was a it was a hard summer. It was really hard, you know, a long, long, brutal summer, and to get to come back to X, the you know, into a new camp, to a new spot, it's all fresh to me, and within what an hour of being there, we. You know, that happens. Yeah. So you came down with cancer. You missed two summer operations, mm-hmm. which is huge for you. Yes. And I know it's huge for you because you and I talk about this all the time. Yeah. And to miss two years worth of operations, that's like missing two years of your life. It really is. Essentially. You feel like a caged animal. Right. right. So this is your very first time back in the Area X after defeating cancer. Yep. And within the first hour of <laughs> know, us right? being in the valley, <laughs> you have your very first visual of a wood ape. It's one of the things I've wanted the most. I got rewarded with against one of the things that nobody wants, you know? <laughs> I feel like the universe gave me that little gift for just a moment. Like, here you go. You, you survived, you know? But it was just weird, you know? It was just bizarre. Yeah. Of course. I, I, can, Obviously. I can imagine. <laughs> All right, Chad. Well, is there anything else that you want to add? Man, I think that's it. We're doing what we do out here in the best place to be and having a good time, right? We are. We Couldn't are. be any better. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me, buddy. All right. See you. Always. There's a place I know where time passes slow and the stars hang so low you can see they burn just like coals over silver meadows and the moonlight cascades like a
So I'm sitting here with Alton Higgins and Phil Burroughs, two members of Echo Team, who had the first visual observations of the summer operation last year. Can you tell me a bit about what your plans were that day and what you were out doing that facilitated these visual observations? Well, from where our camp is, most of the activities come from the West. And so over the years, we've, we've employed a, a, a tactic where we try to take advantage of the fact or our belief that these creatures are curious enough to sometimes follow us. So if we're walking, you know, taking a long hike and we're coming back, oftentimes it appears that these creatures follow us, out of curiosity, I guess. Our plan was to was take a fairly, I mean, not miles and miles, but a good little hike to the west. And then there were three of us, Hans from Montana, Phil and I from Oklahoma. And the plan was to uh, hike to the west and find a spot that we thought looked suitable where Phil and I would uh, would peel off and Hans would keep on hiking uh, another, I don't know, mile or so. And then after a bit, he would come back and pass us. And then we'd hopefully be in a position to uh, see if, if he was being followed. So Hans was essentially acting as bait and you were hoping that something would follow Hans that would lead to either of you being able to see it and or take a shot? That's right. I was north of the trail. Alton was south of the trail. Uh, I was about 50 yards uh, north in a chair. Alton was 25, 30 yards south of the trail. How long had it been before you saw what you saw? We had been hunting, I think, about three, three and a half hours, and it was around 6.30-ish when... We, I think, had predetermined we were going to, you know, call it a day. And, and that's about when I got up. I believe I was the first person to, to get up and attempt to walk out to the trail. I had lent Phil some uh, brown camo, like a poncho, uh, if he wanted to use it. I don't know if he ended up using it or not. I, I did use it. Did you? Okay. After, you know, being in place for a few hours, I was I was south of the of the of the trail about 20 yards or so Phil was north of the trail uh, 50 yards or so I think he said and we um, had agreed to try and come to an end at a certain point and a little bit earlier than that point in time I saw what I thought was Phil I saw a brown figure walking kind of to the um, southeast my about 2 o'clock and it was brown solid brown but for some reason, I thought, oh, there goes Phil. And I thought it was maybe something was wrong because it was a little bit earlier than what we talked about. So I grabbed my stuff and rushed down the road and started hollering for Phil. And, and I figured he'd have to be on the trail, but I never found him. So that was, that was confusing to me. And so I turned around and, and headed back the other way, whistling really loud and hollering for Phil. And, and when I got up to walk out, I will admit that I, I got turned around and I walked straight ahead after I picked up my stool and I thought I was walking out and I walked straight towards the creek. And when I realized I hit the creek, I knew I'd gone the wrong way. So I turned and started walking. I kind of paralleled the creek and at some point realized I'd lost my bearings, obviously. And, and I believe I called out for Alton. I believe I also, uh, I, I might have whistled, and at some point, I believe I heard 
uh, Alton. I can't remember for sure if I first heard him holler or whistle, but as I'm looking south and kind of off to my left, about 75, 80 yards, I, I look and I see a figure just standing there looking straight ahead. And it was kind of a, a, a little bit of a rocky, I wouldn't say cliff, but a little bit of a, of a rock incline. And I see this figure just standing there looking straight ahead. And immediately I think, oh, there, there's Alton. So, you know, I'm, I'm okay. And I continue to walk and I hear Alton, you know, whistle again. And eventually we meet up on the trail and we start kind of comparing notes. And you know, Alton mentioned something about, you know, seeing me earlier. And as we're talking about what, you know, we just saw, I think we both realized our stories are not jiving. Yeah, <laughs> they were not because, jiving at all. Because the, cre- the the figure that I first saw, as I'm as I was thinking, it, it, it didn't look like what Alton had on at all in terms uh, of the color the and color. the profile. And as I'm looking at Alton there on the trail, Alton, you know, had a, a ghillie suit, and he he looked bulkier than what I saw, and and he had a little stool. Uh, he had his rifle and I think a backpack, a backpack. and bright the f- blue backpack. The figure that I saw, I didn't, I didn't see all that gear. And and again, it was just standing there straight ahead. And I mentioned to Alton at that time what I saw was just standing there looking straight ahead. And Alton commented, "Well, I never was just standing there, you know, looking straight ahead." As soon as I saw the brown figure walking, in two seconds, I, I had my binoculars up to see if I could see him again. And I couldn't see him, and literally two or three seconds is all that took. And I thought, there goes Phil. I don't see him now, but he's on the trail. So I literally just scooped up my stuff, and in a matter of 10 seconds or so, I had a little path. I was up on this rise that is the same one Phil's talking about here. And I I was down it in nothing flat and hurrying down the road hollering for him. And like I said earlier, when, when I didn't hear or or see him, I turned around and went back, and again, I was confused. What What's going on? You know, I should have seen him. I was above the road, looking down on the road, and I saw him, you know, going away, but I didn't see him coming back. And so I turned around and headed back towards uh, where I'd come from, and that's when I met Phil. It was actually a little ways past where, where I'd gone up on the hill. We hiked all the way back to camp, you know, trying to sort this out in our minds <laughs> and, uh, you know, try to discuss with each other, you know, what happened again, you know, it it wasn't something that we figured out like that. You know, it it took us some mulling over to come to a real true realization of of what had happened. When you saw the figure, you thought it was Phil and thought it's a little early for Phil to be up and moving. Well, I thought it was Phil because it was brown. Mm. But the more I thought about it, I mean, Phil has a distinctive boonie cap that he wears. He has snow white hair. Uh, He walks in a particular way that's recognizable. And this thing was just like smooth. It was just like floating along and it was going pretty quickly. You know, that's why I thought Phil was in trouble because of how fast it was going. But that was not Phil at all. When I saw Phil, it was kind of like what he realized when he saw me. When I saw Phil, he looked like he normally, you know, looked. He wasn't covered with, with this with this camo brown thing. Of course, the figure I saw was, was uniformly brown. The brown camo that I lent him which he wasn't wearing when we came together, was a, was a camo thing with, with lots of um, 
holes, or mm-hmm. some kind of uh, cut, die cut kind of a thing, you know. He was wearing different colored clothing and, you know, the snow white hair. And the, it was just, and I, I did I not see Phil. I wouldn't have been walking that fast right. either because, as I mentioned, I was kind of uh, a little bit lost. And I was, my, my, my steps would have been slower because I was still trying to, to get my bearings and, and in that jungle, so to speak, when you're a little confused about where you are, it's easy to walk past even the trail in spots because yeah. I've all, I've done that a time or two, walk past a trail or almost past it and caught myself and just and so I've just tried to you know slow myself down and make sure I you know I didn't walk past the trail or where I needed to be. So I wouldn't have been walking that fast and I didn't walk that fast at, at that point in time. Plus, the terrain is not such that you typically walk quickly through it anyway. You know, you can get tripped up with green briar and stones and what have you. Uh, the, the first figure that I saw was, was clearly, it was not looking at me. It was, it was kind of looking straight ahead, and, and it, it was, you know, here, and I was over here. And if anything, it, it might have been, you know, looking more at Alton. And certainly wasn't looking at me. I don't think it saw me at that at that time. What I'm curious about, and also for the benefit of the audience, would be in the timeline of calling to each other. I mean, do you think that you had begun calling to Alton, and the thing was looking for that voice when you saw it, and then when you started calling? I wonder what was the initial stimulus that drew it in. Maybe it was trying to find. Hans or all three of you, or if their sounds were generated from some point first that preceded, because obviously you saw it before you start, you started calling to Phil after you saw it, right. thinking it was Phil. So I wonder if you had generated sounds somehow prior to that. Maybe the first time you called out for Alton was. So I, I just didn't know if you had any speculations about. We what. have speculations, but the timeline is, is so tight that mm-hmm. we can't really be sure exactly what happened first. My impression was that. When Phil, that maybe the creature was was focused on Phil, he heard him or, or whatever. And when Phil got up and was was uh, walking around, that the animal was retreating from him, and that's when I saw it. And then when I rushed down the hill, hollering and whistling for Phil, my impression was that the animal circled around to my or close to where I had been posted up on top of the hill, and that maybe that's when Phil saw it. But it could have been, you know. That Phil saw the critter first. We don't know for it's sure exactly. Very short window, and a lot mm-hmm. of things are overlapping. Certainly, yeah, now, we we did hear a pretty loud wood knock prior to all this too. I, I don't know if it's worth mentioning, but you know we we did hear that. Another interesting aspect: the next day, we returned to basically the same area with uh, not quite as far, but close to where we had you know had this experience, these sightings. And uh, one of our teammates, Jay, wanted to see where where we'd been. So we went back and sat for, I don't know, three or four hours in different places. And we got back together and we were heading back towards camp. And I guess that's when Jay said, I want to see where y'all were. So we it wasn't far. We walked a little ways to where Phil and I had, had been posted. Getting I hadn't even gotten one sentence out trying to explain to uh, to Jay what I'd seen and what had happened. And this tremendous cracking tree break close to us. I mean, what do you say, 20 yards? Probably. Something like that. 
this tree was pushed over. And Jay, he got really animated, and he said, that was no blankety-blank coincidence. <laughs> uh, he was positive that, that, you know, all of our sitting, and there was an ape nearby, and that when we had ventured towards the east, then we suddenly stopped and came back to the west, that maybe we'd surprised at doing something unexpected. I mean, we can't really know, but we found the tree, you know, I think the day after that, or maybe went back later the afternoon. Do you recall, Phil? I, I'm not sure. But we went back again and, and said, okay, the tree break came from that direction. We went over there, and there it was. And strangely enough, there was like almost like a little highway, a wide pathway that you could easily imagine that the animal had used to uh, rapidly retreat after pushing the tree over, pulling the tree over. That is interesting. That certainly was the first sighting of what we now know to be a pretty active summer with seven total sightings. But yours, you know, I count those as two because they, you weren't together. You know, even though you were probably seeing the same animal, mm-hmm. it's two different observations from two different points. Um, and as I understand, that was your first visual as well. And how many years had you been going out in the valley there, Phil? Um, I think uh, 2009 is when I joined, um, but I think 2010 might have been the first year I actually spent any time in there. So, 10 years. I find it interesting, too, in that the human element of categorizing the unknown against the known, even though you've been going there for years, you know the apes are there, you've probably heard all of these stories of people seeing an ape and thinking initially it was their teammates, and it just seems like this is such a natural part of the progression of encountering something like this. And I wondered how, how that might have felt in that moment, especially once you realized that it wasn't Alton. It, it was it was really anticlimactic because when I first saw it, I think it's Alton. And it really didn't even register for, for a while um, because I, I guess I wanted my first sighting to be so much more. You know, I want to see a face. I want to see a body, you know, like, like Patty or something very similar. And it was anything but that, you know, I, 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 I guess I was disappointed in one end, one stance, I guess, but, but still it's my first sighting. So it, it does mean a lot, but I just wish it had, had been something more. And, and I guess I wish I'd just been more prepared for it. Yeah. He had a possibility of, of a collection event. The one I saw was just, you know, two seconds didn't you mention that you didn't think it was looking in your direction? Yeah, it wasn't looking at me. It was looking straight ahead, and I was kind of diagonal from it. Had I known it, it was a wood ape, I, I had time to shoulder and, and let around go. I was disappointed in myself that I, that I didn't react anymore. I mean, I was just aggravated that I didn't take the time and, and look at it more closely. I, I should have glassed it with some binoculars. And instantly, I, I would have probably realized what I was looking at and then taken a shot. Well, it probably makes sense now, in retrospect, all the stories of all the teammates exactly. that immediately categorize it. to as so many people the first time, or even maybe the second, second or, or third, third time. Or fourth time, you see one and you go, oh, that's my teammate. Yeah, they, they think, well, no, that's, that's not a wood ape. That's one of my teammates walking in this, or they were just in this direction. It's got to be them. And even if you know what they're what the plan is, you know, I'm going to be over here. You still think, how come they're doing something different, you know? You, you, you need to have, I guess, the trust in them, but you still question, you know, I wonder why he's over here now. I mean, it's made me, um, I think, change my ways in that I don't really want to go out on a hunt anymore without 
a set of binoculars around my neck. I, I don't, I haven't been doing that at all, but now I think I don't want to go out unless I have that around my neck to where I can just grab it and look and be better prepared. Certainly. Well, it was a fascinating event and it again kicked off a very eventful summer. You know, our team was the week before yours and we had absolutely nothing happen. No sights, no sounds. And so that was, uh, I think, the first very good news. Of- We've had plenty of weeks and months like that. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you can't go in and, and expect that uh, it's, it's going to be a, a rootin' tootin' time. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's just a lot of work. And sometimes things happen, and oftentimes, more often than not, things are slower. You know, nothing's going on. You just have to keep after it. You just never know. I would definitely think at a retreat like this, hearing stories like yours and seeing, you know, this narrative, the chronological narrative of sightings that happened last year, that it would be hard for brand new members or the old salts not to feel pretty optimistic about 2020 mm-hmm. in this summer operation. Yeah. So is there anything in particular you're looking forward to this year? I think the fact that last summer we had quite a few, I don't know how many offhand, but we had several uh, sightings and, and other events that we were pretty confident represented apes approaching our camp, approaching, even breaking into the perimeter of our camp. And so I'm excited about the possibility of uh, doing a slightly different approach to our Overwatch uh, techniques and and taking advantage, hopefully, of, of more close encounters. I think there's a lot to be optimistic about the obvious increase in the number of incursions and intrusions into camp there, our new thermal imaging technology for spotting and for collection opportunities. So I think 2020 is set to be a, a great operation. It's going to be an epic year. We're going to be doing so much more in the way of new approaches. Absolutely. No, good. <laughs> but it's, that's kind of the gist. Watch the rain wash away his crops I saw him work until it nearly dropped Sun up till sundown six days a week Come Sunday mornings he would rest his feet down at the church house But come harvest time It always getting late It'd be back in the fields By daybreak He wore overalls And a wide brimmed old straw hat Keep the Texas sun off his neck and back East Texas sun He was a working man No matter how hard he'd scrub 
his hands That red Texas play wouldn't wash away This part of his soul It moved through his veins It lay beneath his cradle So I'm here now with Daryl Collier and James Rester, who were part of Foxtrot team last year during Operation Variance in 2019. And they had what I think was one of the most compelling and most significant visual contacts in the Valley last year. And so, Daryl, can you tell me a little bit about what you were doing that precipitated this particular event? So personally, what I was doing that day is um, I had gone on a long circuitous patrol of maybe five miles uh, toward the east of camp in a long circular pattern. And so, of course, the hope was that I would run into something on my patrol or alternatively that I would possibly bring something back to camp with me. Now, in hindsight, we think that's probably what happened. I returned back to camp probably about uh, 1,700 hours, 5 p.m., Got back. Uh, other guys were there. We had chow, and you know, as the sun's going down, we begin to uh, we begin to transition into our nighttime standard operating procedures, which generally involves uh, going into what we call Overwatch mode, which is where we take to uh, thermal optics. We we shut all lights down. There's no light. There's no fire. There's no light whatsoever other than just the natural starlight. And it was I remember it was very dark that night. I couldn't even really see my teammates to either side of me. And I think around 2100 hours, 9 p.m., I think James heard something. Right, James? Yeah. So, James, you heard something that prompted your attention, correct? Yeah. Anyone who's been with me in the Valley... A few times I've been knows that I'm I'm not skittish, but I'm very alert to noise. It's what I do for a living as a musician. I'm just aware of sounds. And I always ask, what was that sound? What was that sound? And um, my goal on this, my second trip in, was to apply visual confirmation of the sounds I was uh, hearing throughout the valley. At this time, we were sitting around a cold camp, fire, circle, just, you know, talking at a low level. I continued to hear what I, it sounded kind of like an armadillo. You know, they make a lot of noise, but it's, it's sort of intermittent. And, um, I, I kept looking over, I kept alerting our team leader, Daryl to that sound. And we never made any confirmation of what it was until, I don't know, maybe five, 10 minutes in. And then I was certain I had a hit on the thermal scope. It was really hot. And I was like, right. Daryl, and he hops up. Everyone stay seated. I'm scanning the area. And he got a massive hit on his scope, which was on his. My 458 SOCOM. So we're sitting in the dark. You just have to picture this this situation. We're sitting, there's four of us, four guys. We're sitting in the dark, sort of in a semicircle. Uh, James hears this, this sound to the east. He looks over with a handheld thermal. He sees a heat signature on his thermal. Cannot identify it. He notifies me. He alerts me. So I'm sitting. So I turn with the rifle, with the scope on the rifle. I turn to look, and then I see a big, massive heat signature. In the post-visual analysis, we estimated that it was about 40 to 45 meters from our position. 
Um, that's what I would have estimated before we even measured it. So I'm looking at this and I don't know immediately what I'm seeing. In past experiences, there have been times where I've seen white-tailed deer and they looked like what could have been, you know, uh, a wood ape or a Sasquatch um, initially. And then you watch them for uh, a given amount of time and finally they, you know, they reveal themselves more fully and you're able to determine that what you're seeing is in fact a white-tailed deer. So while I'm looking at this, all this is running through my mind and I'm telling my teammates, okay, everybody just sit still, remain calm. Because they all want to get up. They want to turn their lights on. They want to look, whatever. And I, mean, I just want to remind everybody, stay calm. Don't even look over there. Just everybody stay seated. Don't talk excitedly. And, and I'm watching this thing the whole time. I mean, this is ongoing for, for what, a minute? 45 seconds, probably? It, it was more than a minute. Yeah. It was a lot. Yeah. And so I'm watching it. And the whole time I'm watching it, James still has a visual. His visual is not as good as mine, as we later found out. But I'm watching it, and I perceive that it's slowly backing away from us. And there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of timber, a lot of limbs, small limbs, tree limbs, uh, and brush between me and it. Even though I'm in the center of camp, it's beyond the edge of camp. And there's a lot of brush in front of it, but I can still see like a chest, what looks like could be a chest, a head. I can't really tell. I want to make sure what this is. And then I see what was most certainly an arm reach out. In fact, it would have been a left arm reach out and it, I guess it grabbed a tree limb, uh, maybe pushed a tree limb out of the way as it's moving back. And at that moment, what I'm seeing then becomes much more clear. And so you're thinking, okay, why don't you take the shot? Well, again, because there's a lot of vegetation between me and it. And, and right then, I got to be honest with you. The first thing I'm thinking, man, that looks like a dude. That looks like a guy out there. And, it's, you know, so you want to be sure what it is you're shooting at. At the same time, I have all this, you know, this reason and rationality that's running through my mind. It's like, who would be out here in the pitch dark? I can't even see Jaybird or James to my left and right. I can't even see them. Uh, you know, who's going to be out here in these, in these, you know, rocky, boulder-strewn woods with green briar everywhere in the pitch dark watching us in the dark? They won't even be able to see us. So... That, you know, that's reason. But at the time, you just you just want to be sure. And so I'm watching this thing. James is watching it. And I don't know what, at what point, James, you lost it visually. But um, well, my, my initial contact with it visually through the thermal scope was just a very large, hot blob. Yeah. That I alerted you to. When I stood up, you told me to sit back down, which I did. And uh, we just sort of stayed, stayed calm. And you... You moved slightly away from the circle to get a better vantage point. That's right. I was moving back and forth kind of. You were finding a better yeah. vantage point, and then you you went hot. You were ready. To, you were like, I'm, am I going to do this? I'm not sure. Like, you were, getting, you were getting ready to send around. Like, you were really locked in on this thing. You mentioned the arm, and I could not help myself. I got up and walked around behind you mm -hmm. after you sounded as though you weren't going to take a shot. Because mm -hmm. I had actually plugged my ears thinking, I do not right. want to hear a 458 SOCOM yeah. um, this close with no protection. When you were in the process of going through your logic mm -hmm. and like, you know, who would be out here? I walked around behind you and to your other side. Mm -hmm. And that's when I saw a much better view yeah. and saw its shoulders and yeah. head yeah. sort of 
rolling as right. it was backpedaling very slowly. Yeah. And, um, and then it just kind of faded. As I recall, it kind of just faded off back into the... It got back behind some vegetation. Yeah, and, and just, we lost it. And we lost it. Yeah, that and was it. And it never made a sound. Right, the thing, right. And it was not that far away. And it was a huge bears, deer, two people side by side that would it well, would require to be that side that size make noise. And then the next morning, right, we got Jaybird out there to mm-hmm. to uh, you know s- step in for the thing uh, to do a recreation, and it was obvious then. I was one hundred percent certain that had been a wood ape. Incredibly. Roughly, how tall is is Jaybird? Jaybird six six two six three. How much larger, if you had to describe? It was twice his size. Yes, in width, maybe a foot foot and a half taller. Wow, I think we estimated seven to seven and a half. This thing was enormous. It was twice his width at the shoulders, and uh, based on where it was standing behind vegetation, it would have had to have at least been one foot taller than him. Yeah, just to make contact from our position, mm-hmm. it was enormous. Yeah, you know, I just I just want to add that we throughout the uh, throughout that all four team members just remained very cool, calm, collected. We were quietly discussing what was going on. You know, I was, I mean, I had the rifle and I was had the reticle on it and I was just standing there going, okay, guys, I may be taking a shot here, you know, and um, again, I didn't, but um, at the time, I just wanted to be absolutely certain and I couldn't, in my own mind, I couldn't work it out that I, you know, at the time, I just didn't take the shot and that's it. Hindsight's twenty twenty, yeah. and and I've, I've complained about this uh, in my own, you know, rethinking of it that... If I had this idea, then things might be very different because we were far enough ahead of the road that I could have flanked it and possibly flushed it. And while I know these things are potentially incredibly fast and elusive, it might have given you an opportunity to say, that's an ape. I'm sending around. And uh, if this ever happens again, we will communicate about it quietly. And that's what we will do. Yeah. You live and you move on. Mm Mm-hmm. So 2019 was your first year with the NAWC in the field, correct? Yes. I went down for one day with Alton just to sort of see Camp David. And then a couple weeks later in March, I went with the uh, the crew that did a lot of the uh, repairs and sort of just sort of fixing the place up. I spent a lot of time working on the little uh, uh, drainage on the other side of the cabin. And I actually did that just the other day with Paul Bowman. We drove down and I spent some time digging around in the rain because I, I don't know why I'm so focused on that drainage, but I think it's important. So, you know, everyone has a thing. So it's pretty significant to have a siding like that, a thermal contact like that. It doesn't satiate you, though, does it? No. Yeah, not even close. I mean, the thing is, it's enough for me that people like yourselves have had sightings and reported, and I, I trust that you are a sound mind. What I saw in that thermal imager, I cannot explain as a bear or a deer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or a or human a being. Yeah. Because yeah. it was enormous. Behavior and it's the size. Behavior. Yeah. And yeah. But, uh, at the, but, but in the moment, though, it's much more difficult through a thermal scope to make that decision. And that's a difference for me between a daytime visual certainly. and a thermal visual. Because a daytime visual, I've got all these other aspects. You know, I can see color. I can see, you know, all sorts of things. with, And I've got a much wider field of view. But through a thermal scope, it's very claustrophobic. All you can see is this little round thing. And everything else is pitch black. And you've got this image in there. And it's like you don't see. And it's really, I would say, two-dimensional, really. It's just, you know, illuminated by heat. And you you're know, seeing this white 
hot signature figure. The, we went through the process of talking about some of the big big points from last last season, and I think it's important for people to understand zero shots were taken. This is the most responsible group. I've never worked in an organization more responsible and thoughtful about the the operation and the this mission because it's you're dealing with um, you're dealing with people in awkward situations and terrible terrain in the heat of the summer in Oklahoma looking for something that looks like a gigantic person and you're asking a lot of anybody in any amount of experience they may have military or likewise to take a shot at something that's walking on two legs. And this group is not being irresponsible. That's important. Very well stated. So you excited about what 2020 has to offer? You better believe it. I might be spending the entire month of June down there. I haven't decided, but there's at least two weeks that I'm <laughs> going to be down there. And yeah, that's good. Sweating my tail off. And, uh, you good. know, Excellent. I'm very mission oriented. We've got to get this done. Let's do it. Roger Let's that. get it done. How about you, Dar? Are you excited about 2020? Oh, I'm very excited, man. You know, I'm not going to be able to give as much field time as I've given in, in years past because I'm neck deep in grad school, plus I work full time. But I am going to be out there, and um, I'm very excited. Um, I can't walk away knowing what I know, what, I, what I've seen. I just, you know, I've got an obligation. I think I, I think there's an ethical responsibility there to, uh, to demonstrate to the world that uh, this, is a, this is a real live animal. Well, thank you guys for taking the time to talk with me today. Thanks, Matt. Absolutely. Last night, I had this dream. You were my girl and life was so serene. I didn't notice anything but you and me. Of us with nothing to fear and no one to mistrust. I couldn't help but think our love had only just begun. And I'm searching for answers in my sleep. I'd kill for a secret I could keep. Call you, but I'm in too deep. So tonight I hope to find you in my dreams. And this morning, girl, I am sitting with Jay Southard and Alton Higgins, and we're gonna hear about their, I guess I'd call it a thermal visual encounter. Alton, you wanna yeah. you wanna tell me what you guys were doing? Sure, we were there with Jerry Heston. And the week before, the team had observed uh, through thermal a very large figure that was close to our camp in a, um, we call it the Bowman Branch. It's like a little tributary to um, a larger creek nearby. And it's very, you know, lots of trees and limbs and things. But uh, I guess James saw it. He was one of the team members Mm -hmm. the previous week. James had a viewer, handheld, thermal viewer, and uh, Daryl had the, uh, the rifle-mounted thermal viewer. But James saw this figure uh, east of them, close, and it was very large. He called attention to it, and Daryl immediately you know, saw it as well. We were informed about this the week uh, after that on our team. And so Jay and I, we had a dark camp, 
and we positioned ourselves down near this uh, crossing. We call it the Bowman Branch and the crossing. A dark camp, just in case anyone doesn't know what that term means. That means you guys were out there. It's dark. You have no lights on in the camp. You were basically standing around in the ambient darkness, pitch black. Yeah, just starlight basically, basically is all we were. And the light coming off the thermals. That's it. Completely dark. Jerry was in bed asleep. Uh, he'd been up early the previous day, so he, he retired early. So we were aware. We'd been updated, advised as to uh, the sighting that James and Daryl had. So anyway, we, we thought, well, what if this thing comes back? So we went down there to the crossing, and, and I was uh, the one with the, uh, the rifle-mounted thermal scope, and I was focused in the direction from which this animal had been seen the week before by James and Daryl. So you're looking basically to the east of where our cabin is. Exactly. And we were back to back, so... Were you standing there, or were you sitting, or how, how were you... We, we were doing both, okay. Brian. Uh, we were there for hours. Right. We did have chairs down there, so we were standing. Occasionally, we'd get up, stretch our backs, and look around. And we were all panning like we do, full 360, but our primary point of... of a view would be to the immediate east where we had to, I happened to be on that team the previous week okay. and uh, was part of that excitement when Daryl went hot and I thought he was I, I really thought we came close to having our tangle right then and there I thought he I thought we were going to get it the way they were talking I didn't have a thermal but listening to James and Daryl talk it looked like uh, that, that could have been could have happened. So you fun. you were looking east too. You were both focusing your direction to the east. Mostly to the east. Although you know you get bored when you're out there for hours, so you'll right. pan up 360. Right. But mostly to the east. We were concentrating on that draw area mm-hmm. immediately to the east of the camp and and further east. So that little sort of like the the woods and that are sort of open to the east. But then you saw something that wasn't to the east. And did you see it first, Jay? I did. Okay. I so did. so what did you see? I had the handheld thermal, and uh, I was just panning around. And I, I pan back toward the cabin, and we have a 55-barrel drum of uh, washing water, um, a cistern that's just used for washing. And I saw what it looked like a—well, it was a bright white signature, and it appeared to be a, a something that was peeking out from behind the barrel. Uh, I could see half of the—I uh, assume it's the head. And for some reason, all I could think of was— there's something wrong with the thermal. It's an old thermal, and it does occasionally have issues. Nothing like this, though. So you, saw, you saw like a crescent shape. It was like a half yes, moon or something. Yes, it was a half moon, and it was, uh, uh, what, Alton, four foot off the ground? Uh, yeah. It was at, at least it was. It was low. Well, low if you call four, four feet. Um, no other I, part. No other part of the of. There was nothing else except this half a crescent, which was bright white. So it's low if you're expecting an eight foot eight to be peeking around a corner, but. It wasn't like on the ground. It was. I thought it was higher. I thought it was higher than that. I thought it was more like five plus feet. Okay. Okay. Because the the uh, the water barrel sits on the porch, and the porch itself is pretty high. Yeah. Um, a couple feet. It's feet. at least two feet. Yeah. yeah. Let me. It was above the barrel. No, no, sir. no, no. It was it was about midpoint in that barrel. Oh, so That's it was why? looking around the barrel. It was looking around the barrel. Oh. Yes, sir. Okay, so when I've heard this story before, I thought it was looking around the corner, but it was actually away from the corner. Yes. The barrel was giving it the correct. So we have a porch on the cabin, and the barrel is on the porch on the edge of the porch on the corner. So it would have to have come out, and then it was peeking around the barrel at you guys. Looking back on it, I'm thinking that thing was. Uh, 
if not quadrupedal, at least semi-squatching. Sure. Yeah. You know, to be that low. Semi-squatting. It was it was fully squatching, is what we think. So so you see the thing and you you alert you alert Alton. Yeah, I, I again I thought there was something wrong with my handheld thermal. Right. Okay. Uh, the focus or whatnot. And I just said, Alton, there's something over here. I said, come take a look at this. And he had his thermal mounting on a, on, on his rifle. And he immediately swung his gun around and he saw the same thing. So tell me about what you saw, Alan. Well he he was all excited. He said something something's wrong with my with my thermal. I'm seeing a half moon. He kept saying, I see half a moon, half yes. moon shape. And uh, you know, maybe something's wrong with this thing. So I, I turned around and, and saw it immediately and, and I th- I thought it was higher, but it was very bright and it was confusing. And we my first impression was that uh, it was some kind of animal, mm-hmm. like a squirrel or, or something, but the shape was completely wrong. It was just com- a f- confusing yeah. deal. And it was so bright that I couldn't really tell if it was on a tree that's near the corner or if it was looking around the corner of the of the cabin, around the, the barrel or the you know, rain barrel. So, like I said, it was just, it was confusing. We were looking at it, we are talking about it, and, and um, it was crescent shaped just like he said uh, it's like like half a half, half a circle, a, half a circle. Half a circle. which is interesting to me because it was about 2 years ago when Daryl and Rich and I were down there and we had uh, we observed through the thermal and through night vision and with the naked eye something with a round head looking around a tree at us in a similar way sort of in a similar area but the cabin wasn't there then so how long did you guys observe this thing i saw it first and i and i was trying to I was trying to rectify in my mind what I was looking at. I I, I yeah. tilt. I remember I tilted that that handheld thermal, and and was looking at it for probably two full seconds, maybe three, before I alerted Alton. Uh, I didn't want to, you know, make a fool out of myself right then and there. You know, need say something. Plenty of time for that, right? <laughs> yes, but it was two or three, two or three seconds, and and then I I got Alton's attention. I said, "You got to look at this. What's you seeing? What I'm seeing?" So the, how long when when you looked at it, Alton? How long did you observe this thing? We haven't talked about this that I recall. It was um, thirty seconds, if that. So uh, thirty seconds, even if you're thirty seconds, that That's for long. for X, that is like an epically long observation. I'll dip. Yeah, super long. I mean, I've had several fleeting glimpses, but you know, anything longer than two seconds is an eternity. You know, as far so, as so, you guys are sitting there just puzzling over this thing, over the shape. Yeah, and we moved to the right. Uh, we both moved. I, I, it was pitch dark. Right. I, I don't know if you were with me, but I moved to the right to try to get a better angle. I tried to get more squared up on the cab. So I could kind of like peek around that barrel and see, get a better view of what I was looking, trying to make sense of what I was seeing. And the next thing I remember, uh, it was gone. Like, I never saw anything more than that crescent. Never saw any uh, any kind of a body or or limbs. We never heard anything. Did it did it withdraw or was you, did you just look at it and it wasn't there anymore? It's like you blink and it's gone. Uh, it might have been me moving. It probably heard me scratching in the dirt. It's dark out there and the rock's coming up out of the ground. You know, you got to kind of shuffle your feet, you know, to make sure you don't trip on a rock. Alton, did you see it go away or, or what, what do you recall about its departure? You know, I'm not sure that we saw it ever move, maybe slightly moved. I think we might have shifted our position a little bit. and I know I did. And, yes. and then when we looked at it, at it again, it was gone. 
again, we were discussing it, you know, like, what, what is that thing? Could it be an animal? I thought maybe it was some kind of animal, a coon or something, climbing up a tree. But again, it wasn't on the tree. And it wasn't climbing. It was pretty much right where it was. It yeah. was stationary. I never saw it move. Okay. But that's what we were, I was wondering, is, is it an animal that has climbed up right. the tree, thinking it might be on the tree? Because the tree is close to the corner. Right. But but it wasn't. We we did a recreation. Did you go? Did you go investigate that night, or did you wait till the next day to do the recreation? Oh. We did not. We, we did. We definitely reexamined the whole deal the next day, and we're thinking it might have been an ape. And we were trying to figure out, okay, where could it have come from? And we looked at the mountainside, you know, in that corner area, and we said it could not have come down through there. Because it's just so thickly tangled, right. and we we say we would have heard it if we would have come down through there. We never thought about it coming uh, from the east to the west, like behind the cabin. Mm-hmm. I don't know why we never thought of that. I was just thinking in terms of it coming down the mountain or coming from the uh, the west. So there's that little there's a so the way the cabin is situated, there's a sort of a draw uh, as the the slopes, you know, like a little drainage draw on the east. There's another one on the west. Uh, do you suppose it could have come down that draw and not not through the foliage right behind the cabin, but down that draw and then around? Um, well, yeah, that's we figured that it had to have come from the west, okay. but again, it seemed unlikely because we figured we would have seen it come. It just and, was, and either either way, it, it it would have it would have had to open itself up, even if it went right to the hooch when it came out of the west draw and stayed with the hooch between us and it. It still has to get from that point there, even if it's back in the trees a little bit, to get to the position we saw it at. After it disappears, you don't go look for it, but you are thinking about it the next day, and then you you decided to do a recreation. Who was the stand-in? Who boboed the, uh, Jer- the thermal? Jerry did that. Stand. And I really, I, I don't know why. I, I didn't give it much credence at the time. But when I saw the recreation, then it was obvious. So when Jerry... The recreation was exactly right. what we saw. I called you, in fact, when that recreation came on the uh, the forum. And I said, that's that's it. That's exactly what I saw. So that was a darn good recreation. Yeah. It nailed it. So the recreation that happened after you guys had gone. I, I left the next day. Oh, I see. So after I you had gone. the next day, and you and Jerry did that. Okay. I, yeah, I wasn't, I wasn't part of the recreation team. So did did Jerry's recreation appear to you to be what you saw? It was exactly spot on. I mean, it was dead on. It was it. Yeah, we took I took video uh, through the thermal, which turned out pretty good actually. Mm-hmm. I took video of Jerry uh, walking towards the cabin uh, in front of the hooch, and then he got behind the the, uh, the corner behind that water barrel, and um, I told him, well, you know, look around the corner. So he peeked around the corner, and bam, it was exactly, exactly like what we'd seen. And when I saw it on the forum, then I knew what the heck we were looking at. I didn't know it. I didn't realize it. I didn't put two and two together until I saw the recreation of what we witnessed live. So at this point, is there any doubt in your minds, either of you, as to what you saw? Do you, do you, do you, do you, is it at this point, do you assume that what you saw was an ape peeking around at you guys? I have no idea what else it could have been. Uh, it made absolutely no noise. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a slick barrel, too. That's a plastic barrel. It's slick. Nothing's going to crawl up that. It's not like a raccoon or something's right. going to get any purchase right. on that barrel. It, uh, 
Nor is there any reason for it to do that. It's just the water, and there's water all over the place. Exactly. I, I, it, I believe it was an ape. And I'm also, in, geez, I'm incredulous. I can't believe we didn't immediately act upon it. Mm-hmm. But You just weren't expecting it. It was nothing you had seen before. Neither of you would have... It, it came right into the camp. Right. And we were there, close to it. You know, right. and who's, who's going to expect an ape to come approach... You know that right. closely. How far away? I mean, I know where you guys were, but what? How? 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 What do you suppose the distance was from where you were standing by the, by the uh, branch to the to the corner Absolutely there? Absolutely, no more than thirty feet. No more than thirty feet. We we weren't all the way down to the the branch. Uh, okay. We were we were fifteen feet or so, so from the fire ring, or even yeah, yeah, and a little bit to the to the east. Of it, but I'd say thirty feet. It might have been forty feet. Okay. I, I mean, it'd be, That's pretty close, it'd be easy. Oh yeah, it'd be oh, easy yeah. to, we're to looking, measure. We're looking deep out there too, right. you know, because uh, right. the actual. And it's another thing too, I suppose, if you're trying to imagine, like, how could these guys have like let this thing slip? I mean, they were expecting activity from the east. None, none of them were expecting it from the west, and you certainly weren't expecting this thing to come into camp like it did. That was brazen. What, what threw me was it was the half crescent. I was, that's why I got your attention. I said, what am I looking at here? Because you've never seen that sort of peeping behavior before. Uh, uh, no, sir. And I've, I've seen it twice, but you'd never seen that before. So it just wasn't in your Rolodex of possible things. Right. And there was no other signature, no other heat. Right. It was just a, like a half of a basketball right. sticking out from behind that, that water barrel, right. that wash barrel. Right. Yeah, that's, that's a good description. The only theory I have as far as not seeing it approach was we were kind of scanning. Uh-huh. You know, you don't just stare at one spot, right. you know, with your thermal. You're kind of looking back and forth. And I was mostly focused, you know, towards the towards the east, like I said. But you scan and all I can think of is it, it may have if it came from the from the west, then it there's a, a distinct clearing between the cabin and the corner of the hooch. And as it passed through there, you know, if we were looking away, we wouldn't have seen it. Mm-hmm. If it came from the west, it had the the cabin, you know, to shield it from us. And the hooch, for if you're listening to this and don't know what that is, it's a it's like a big sort of corrugated steel um, shelter that we have to keep equipment dry and stuff out of the rain and things like that. Um, so yeah, if you guys again, you were focusing mostly to the east, it could have snuck up on you on the west and oh, easily, yeah. yes, easily. It it could have come from latrine area. It might not have come down the draw and, and then used right. the hooch. Right. The uh, south side of the hooch is covered, mm-hmm. and then naturally they can see. We presume they can see very clearly at night. Yeah. So they, yeah, it could have watched us. And when we were focused in another direction, right. because I, I didn't have I didn't have any kind of covering around that that eyepiece on right. my handheld. Right. So it was showing some light. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm sure you guys were standing out like a sore thumb out there. Oh yes, yeah. yes. Yeah. We, we weren't we weren't trying to hide. Right. No, and we weren't talking much. And when we did talk, it was in low tones it would have been easy to see us i mean we were standing in the yes. absolute open right but like the team before had been you know they they were standing out in the open yeah, and, right. and this large large subject that uh, daryl had seen the week before you know made a close approach while they were standing ex- fully exposed with you know the same thermal viewers so we thought well if it does it again we're going to be ready right well, this is pretty cool. I mean, so, I mean, now you guys, you've had this. And so next time you see half a basketball peeking out from around the cabin, you'll, you'll know what it is. <laughs> yeah, It's a shame I have to learn like this. That's how we all learn though. We all learn exactly the same way, you know? So I, I just want to thank you guys for taking the time to talk to me. I appreciate it. I'm sure our listeners do too. Thanks so much.
No problem. I hope it gets us somewhere. Incredibly interesting week down in Area X this past summer during Operation Variance. Mike, I will just let you take it from the top. What was the first major thing that happened? Well, the first major thing occurred on uh, Sunday night. It would be our second day on site. We had spent Saturday just arriving, setting up camp. Sunday was pretty uneventful during the day. We were going to conduct Overwatch that night, so uh, Tony and I had taken some naps early in the evening and um, gotten up around midnight, uh, had some coffee, and we decided to conduct Overwatch out near the fire pit, to at least, or at least start out there. And we didn't have a fire. We had a dark camp. We had the thermal units, and we're scanning. That way he was looking one direction, I was looking the other, and Dusty had uh, turned in. he climbed in his hammock and gone to bed, and Ron was inside uh, the cabin. He had gone to sleep when we came out. And we had not been out there too terribly long when we heard what I can only describe as, as something just um, was just beating the living daylights out of the ground with, a, I don't know if it was a large stick, branch. I, I don't know what it was using, but it was just swinging something very hard. Uh, you could hear the whistle of it cutting the air. It's not quite the right term, but almost like you can hear a golf club when it when it's cutting through the air before it makes contact with the ball. Kind of a whoo sound. Exactly. Like that, yeah. And then, then you heard the impact. So it was like, whoo, bam, whoo, bam. And it was fast and it was hard. And uh, as I was thinking back about it, I... Originally, I was thinking it only, you know, about six or eight times. But uh, as, as we went back and we had taken video uh, in camp there immediately after, it actually went on for 30, 45 seconds, just continuously, just wha-bam, wha-bam, wha-bam. And was that the cadence, would you say? It was It was pretty quick. Yeah, it was, it was pretty quick. And it was a violent sound. You know, it was, um, yeah, I hate to impart emotion to it, but it sounded like a tantrum. It sounded like, you know, I picture a three-year-old at Walmart having a, 
a little fit, you know, because he's not getting his way and just laying in the floor and hitting the, the ground with his fists or something. And that's kind of the impression I had. Just something was frustrated. Something was uh, upset. And I'm assuming by our presence and was letting us know it wasn't happy. Uh, after 30, 45 seconds, it stopped and we just stayed in place. We, our eyes got awful big, as you can imagine, and we, we just couldn't imagine. Neither of us had ever heard anything like that in the woods. Um, uh, and in the time I've been doing this, I've never experienced anything like that in the woods, nor has anyone in the group that I'm aware of uh, experienced anything described even close to this. No, nothing like that has ever been recorded, at least as far yeah, as so the experience was, of the NAWAC is concerned. This was a novel yeah. thing as far as we were concerned at the time. We knew right away there, there's no indigenous animal to Oklahoma that has the capability to do that. Mm-hmm. So we knew what we were dealing with here. What was disturbing is how close it sounded. It sounded like it was in camp. People listening don't have an an idea of the layout of our campsite down there, but it sounded like it was within 25 yards, which is pretty close. Yet, scanning with the thermal units, we could see nothing. Uh, we, We could just see nothing, which made it even more disturbing in a way. It was so loud, we just thought it has to be just right there. And yet it wasn't. Mm-hmm. Um, and we heard nothing retreat, not like it, it made its little appearance hitting the ground and then retreated back into the brush or anything like that. We didn't hear any kind of movement before it started nor after. In hindsight, it, it's very likely it was actually up the slope of the mountain farther away than we initially thought it was. But it sounded so close and we were just amazed that we couldn't see or pick up anything with well, the thermals. After you've been in Area X for about a day, you realize that sound is sort of amplified. Two guys sitting right next to each other hear a sound, and they both look in opposite directions sometime as to where they think it came from. Mm-hmm. It, it does bounce around in there, but uh, we were both of the same mind as to where it came from directionally. And again, it sounded very, very close. Um, so after... Again, 30, 45 seconds of just this beating of the ground with, with something. It stopped, and we're scan- we stayed seated, scanning. We didn't want to get up. We didn't want to drive it further back into the brush, if that's where it was. Um, so we stayed put. Uh, within a few minutes, it started again. Now, we have a, um, a structure down there we call the hooch. It's basically a metallic carport, for lack of a better description. Uh, it's just somewhere to stash equipment and somewhere to sit when it's raining to, to stay dry and keep everything dry. It's approximately 15 yards from where we were sitting. And just a couple of minutes after the first incident, it starts again. And Brandon, I'm going to tell you, I literally thought it is in the hooch. It is under that structure 15 yards from us. It's beating the ground again, that same sound. You can hear whatever it's swinging, cutting through the air, just you know, milliseconds before it strikes the ground. Wa-pow, wa-pow, wa-pow. And this time it's, it's faster. And the perception we had was it's getting angrier, whatever this is. It was, it was an aggressive display meant to intimidate, 
maybe drive us away, frighten us out of the area, or you know. And again, we're attributing emotions to to an animal here, but it was definitely seemed even more agitated than the first time, and and it seemed even closer than it was the first time. Well, to your credit, having the patience to just sit there and possibly wait for it to happen again instead of getting up and chasing after it, which is probably what I would have done, it takes a lot of skill and knowledge to pull that off. Well, uh, I, I don't know. Uh, we just, a lot of it was maybe we just weren't sure quite what to do, um, but you know, we thought maybe we can draw it in closer. Now, this after this second incident, and again, it's another 30 seconds or so of just this beating of the ground with something. And it must have been substantial simply because as hard as it was striking the ground, anything thin would have snapped, it would have broken. And we never heard anything like that. And there was never a, a pause during the, the event until it was done. Again, it sounded like it was right there, 15 yards or so away from us. And at this point, um, you may wish you, you, you take your, your comment back now. At that point, I was like, Tony, it is right there. And I said, get ready. And we hit the lights and we light up. And I was fully expecting to see an ape standing under the hooch holding a, a log or something, you know. And we lit it up. And there's just absolutely nothing there. And we get up and we kind of scan and, and we, we can see nothing. Um, and we're just flabbergasted. You know, we're like, what is going on? So at that point, we said, well, let's do this. Let's go up onto the, the porch of the cabin, which is enclosed. Um, it's where we do overwatch most of the time. Anyway, and maybe we get up there where it can't see us. That will embolden it. It'll maybe it thinks it scared us inside, and maybe that will embolden it to come a little closer, where maybe we can pick it up with the thermals. And so we got up on the porch, and it took us a few minutes to to get up there. Within two or three minutes of being, what I would call really settled in and quiet, we we had not been still and quiet for more than just two or three minutes. I was sitting on kind of the left side of the porch. Tony was on the right. He had the Overwatch weapon. I had a handheld thermal. I was acting as a spotter that night. To my immediate left, it starts again. And, Rand, I'm telling you, I thought I was going to turn and be looking at it face to face. That's how close and how loud it seemed. It's just, again, just bam, 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 beating on the ground. And... I don't. I couldn't tell you exactly how many times it, it happened. It was shorter than the previous two times, but after multiple ground strikes, something struck the wall, the metal wall of the hooch, and it was just this, a tremendous metallic bang on the hooch. Um, I don't mean that to say it was like something metal hitting the hooch. It was just the metal of the hooch just being contacted really hard. Now, initially, my impression was whatever it had been swinging and striking the ground with, it turned and almost maybe like a baseball player took a swing and, and took a rip at the wall of the hooch. And that's what happened. But it was so loud. It just, um, the hooch, the metal, the, it just reverberated for several seconds afterward, kind of like the aftermath of a 
when a bell rings, how you can kind of hear it slowly trailing off. It just rang the hooch like a bell. And I, I just can't describe how loud it was. Tony, at that point, who had the weapon, stands up and he he yells, weapon hot, going to white light. And I he stepped out, took the first step down off the porch. And I covered my ears. I was so sure that whatever this was, was mere feet from us. He was going to step down those steps and, and it's going to be right there. And I'm, I'm waiting for the shot. I covered my ears. And after three, four, five seconds, nothing happens. I get up and go and there's nothing. There's not. We can't see anything. There's just nothing. And we thought we might have heard something kind of rustling, but we weren't sure because, to be honest, we, we we'd had our cages rattled a little bit uh, at that point. And after this this loud impact, Dusty um, was sleeping in a hammock, hammock back east of the cabin. He had slept through the um, the ground strikes, but he sat bolt upright, you know, when the when the hooch got hit. And he's like, what the hell was that? You know, and Ron, who had been inside, had not heard the ground st- strikes inside the cabin, but he comes out because he heard the, the contact with the hooch. And in hindsight, I don't know if it struck the wall of the hooch or if maybe something was thrown from down off the slope. I wonder now if maybe there weren't two animals involved somehow because it was not even after the last of the ground strikes. It wasn't even like one, one Mississippi before, bam, it hit, something struck that hooch. And it makes me wonder. I don't know how something could be holding a branch or a log or whatever it was it was hitting the ground with. Put it down and then throw something that quickly. You know, I don't know. That's speculation, but... Um, you know, looking back now, it's fascinating to me. It, it's it was a novel event as far as uh, as our group goes, and I've like most people who've gotten into this. When I started, I, I was reading all the books. You know, from the classic stuff, uh, The Apes Among Us, John Green, all the way through all the newer stuff. And I don't recall reading this particular behavior anywhere. Maybe I've missed it. I'm not saying this is the first time anywhere it's happened, but I'm unaware of it happening anywhere else. And there's simply nothing in the woods in this part of the country, well, for that matter, North America, as far as indigenous wildlife, that can do what this thing was doing. Because you have to be able to grip an object in order to strike it against the ground multiple times. Exactly. You know, a bear can't do that. Mm -hmm. The strength, I I can't get across to you the power the, the strength that whatever this was had, the way it was swinging this thing through, and it must have been substantial because, like I said, it would have snapped it um, after a strike or two of the ground. Because you know how hard and packed that ground is, how rocky it is mm-hmm. uh, up there. And whatever it was was substantial enough to go through three rounds of this and not snap. And again, I just can't stress how powerful it was and how how it just sounded so agitated. And it was an angry sounding behavior. You know, we interpreted it as aggressive, as intimidation type behavior. You know, something along the lines of what you see a gorilla shaking vegetation and, and, you know, the throwing of, of, of objects and things like that. It was just another form of intimidation tactic is how we took it. 
um, hoping maybe to drive us away. Um, but again, it was a novel behavior as far as I know, uh, for sure for our group, mm-hmm. and never experienced anything like it. Tony, none of us had ever, and, and as we came back and told the group about it, nobody's ever heard of anything quite like that. How hard was it to get to sleep that night after that happened? Well, you know, it, we were on Overwatch, so we didn't have to try to go to sleep. You know, we, yeah. we stayed up, um, and I, we were pretty attentive uh, for, I for several hours before mm-hmm. that adrenaline really died down. But it was um, just quiet as it could be the rest of the night. Well, that's a perfect spot to wrap up. Thanks for coming on the show, Mike. Oh, thank you. Watching the sun go down Taking an evening stroll On the edge of town Simple things Watching the sparrows fly Hearing the thump of the wheels As the night train rolls on by All I'm keeping from the memories that we share Or the times we laughed, the nights we loved And the days we had no cares I've thrown away a flood of tears And a heart that broke in two All I have are good memories All I ever good memories of you. I am with Dusty Haithcote. Dusty, we just heard from Mike Mays, who spent a week in Area X on the very same team that you did. And when we left off with him, he described to us what I am now referring to as the ape tantrum incident, in which he heard something repeatedly banging a large stick on the ground. And my understanding is you were there that night, but you didn't hear any of that go down until the loud, explosive sound of something ringing the hooch. Is that correct? That is absolutely correct. So you were sacked out in your hammock and you heard this explosive sound. What happened after that? Well, I jolted awake and probably had a mild coat brown. Started flailing around in my hammock trying to get out. And um, as soon as it stopped, I heard Tony Schmidt pipe up. I think he said something along the lines of, gents, out of your beds, weapons out and up, white lights on. It took me another minute to discombobulate myself from my hammock. And then uh, by the time we got out, man, everything was everything was just kind of as it was before, I guess. Uh, there was no, no movement, nothing. We scanned with white lights and there was nothing going on. Yeah, when I sleep in my hammock in Area X, even when I know that I have to get up, like say I wake up and I have to pee, it usually takes me five minutes to get my things sorted so I can actually get out of my hammock in the first place. So I I imagine that waking up to a loud, explosive, metallic sound like that, you basically almost rolled over out of your hammock and fell into the ground. (laughs) I have the the Hennessy Safari ASM that has the uh, zipper near the foot end. Mm Mm-hmm. So it was it was even more fun trying to get out of that thing, <laughs> as you can only imagine. So that was all that you heard for the rest of that night. I, I read the after action report, and I believe it was two days later 
the rest of your teammates had left camp. I think they actually left the valley and left you there at the cabin by yourself. And you had something very interesting happen to you at this point. What happened? I did. Uh, so the guys took off. They went to uh, go into town to refit, rearm, get some uh, get some more ice and cold drinks, all that fun stuff, and you know, check in with home. And so I just kind of decided I was going to do Overwatch over on the front porch of the uh, cabin. Man, basically all I did was had my rifle and the Overwatch rifle and um, about four or five bottles of water, and just kind of kicked back and you know scanned intermittently and just kind of hung out. And uh, man, I probably. 30 minutes into this, 45 minutes into this, something just started banging. And it sounded like like somebody banging on a on a plastic bucket, if that makes any sense. Like they upturned the bucket, they had a stick, and they were just banging on it like a drum. It was possibly one of the weirdest things I've ever heard up there. And this went on for, I'd have to check my notes, but you know, at least an hour. And it was just a constant 20, 30 bangs and then nothing for about 30 seconds and then it would just start back up again. It was, it was really, really surreal. Did it ever move? I don't think it did. I think it was coming from Northeast from where I was. And I continually scanning, you know, as much as I could from the porch and uh, from behind cover, man, and I, I couldn't see a thing, man. Nothing was moving, but you could constantly hear this thing banging on a bucket. It was surreal. What was the cadence? It was, if I could bang on my desk, it was just kind of a, just sporadic there was no pattern to it it was just over and over again and it would stop for maybe 30 seconds and then it would just start going again and this went on for over an hour yes wow like i said i have to check my notes but i'm pretty sure it was it was most of the time i was i was ensconced up there on the on the porch so you're up there behind our overwatch panels on the porch did you make any noise at this point in time did you try to go outside and catch sight of whatever was making that sound no, I didn't move from there. I did accidentally knock over a bottle of water, and that was it. That was that one time that I actually made some sort of noise up there that I remember. Um, but I know I held position and just kind of scanned and tried to see what I could see. I remember close to the end, I did back into the cabin a little bit and just kind of checked out you know, the two back windows, and there was nothing out there. So after you had knocked a bottle of water over, did the sounds continue? Absolutely. Fascinating. Kept trucking right along like nothing happened. See, that, that makes me think that maybe whatever was making that noise was trying to draw you out from your position. I would have to agree. Absolutely. That's fascinating behavior. And it's also kind of creepy. It really was, man. I mean, I was, you know, I, I am a Texan and I usually go armed wherever I go. And I had a, a fair amount of guns at my disposal and I was still freaked out. I would have been, too. I mean, you're down there by yourself and something is just sort of continually tapping a bucket very near you. It's straight out of a horror movie. It's deliverance stuff. I, I agree, man. I was waiting for the banjos, and it, it was it was surreal, dude. So this went on for an hour. Did it just stop? Was there anything that led to it stopping? I want to say it's the guy showing up. I believe that it stopped just before the guy showed back up at uh, camp. It's interesting. It's also reminiscent of a lot of behaviors that we've recorded before. It really seems like these apes want to watch us, and they really enjoy watching what we're doing for whatever reason. And I, I've been there before in area X where people have gone back into their tent. And as soon, like the minute they go back into their tent, we hear a bang on the cabin or the minute we shut the lights off, something throws a rock from up on the slope. It's like, come back out. Yeah. My, my first rock throw in area X was uh, in 2014. And I was down there again with Tony Schmidt and uh, Mike Mays. 
And we had just, the first night we were there, we had just decided, like, hey, we're going to go ahead and go on in. And Maze was already in there. And Tony and I walked in the cabin. And we closed the door. Not as soon as we turned the lights off, boom, right on top of the cabin, we had a rock throw. Yeah, that's classic. And it's a NAWAC axiom that when you're in Area X, you always have to assume that you're being watched, which sort of increases the creepy factor by 10,000. It really does. Every time I've been down there by myself, I've constantly, constantly, constantly had that feeling of something is sitting there staring at me. And I don't think it's just me being paranoid. I think I honestly think that we're just sitting there being watched. I think we're Saturday Night Live to these to these animals. Speaking of creepiness and being watched, you had an interesting experience. I think it was two days after the porch banging incident, I guess I can call it, that you experienced. Can you tell us what happened? The whole team, we kind of got together and decided we wanted to recon and or hunt at an area that I think my amazing pine best that it's it's it could be a breeding ground, it could be, you know, a nursery of some sort for these animals. I'm not even sure, but there always seems to be something going on in this area. So the basic premise was myself and Tony Schmidt would take his Jeep and he would just kind of walk down the path and just kind of make noise, just like he was hiking normal. And I would follow about 25, 30 meters behind, trying to be quiet. I mean, you, you know as well as I do, it's impossible to be quiet in that place. And then um, we would both post up, and approximately an hour later, Mike Mays and um, Ron McCollum, our other teammate, would show up, and they would walk behind us, see if they could flush anything behind us or you know, bust anything that was watching the trail or whatever. That's basically what we did. We took Tony's Jeep out. We parked it on the main road, and we kind of took off. He was right in front of me, and we went to uh, we went down this trail to like a confluence, or uh, I'm sorry, rather a creek crossing. And I kind of looked around. I was like, yeah, it's a pretty good place to, to hold up and see if I can bust an eight. So I motioned him to keep on going, which he did. And I turned upstream probably 30 yards behind a, a down tree and this, this huge root ball that was just sticking out in the middle of the creek there. And so once he was out of sight, I kind of got in position and got, yeah, there's no being comfortable out there, but, you know, as comfortable as it could be and established some shooting lanes and just kind of sat down and kind of mellowed out for a little bit. I had been sitting there for a while, listening, not hearing anything, smelling, not, not smelling anything. And I started looking over towards the, the creek crossing there. And probably 20, 30 yards up from the actual crossing, I saw this big black shape. It's like, well, you know, that's kind of odd. It could be a shadow. I don't remember that being there from when I was establishing shooting lanes or whatever. So I glassed it with my rifle and um, ended up having to put my rifle on my off eye and my off shoulder and crank the magnification up to six power, which is as high as it would go. And I just see this big black furry mass basically laying on the uh, the west side of the creek bank, like it was peeking over and watching the back trail. As I'm sitting there looking at the thing, you know, I couldn't I couldn't see a face, I couldn't see hands, I couldn't see feet, no distinguishing features, but I just could see this big black furry mass just laying there motionless. Seemingly like it was looking uh, towards the back trail. And the one thing I could really make out was the hair. So the hair was, you know, you've seen a few black bears up there. I have two. They're all very smooth haired, right? This critter that I saw, it was like, the best I can describe was like Bert and Ernie's hair. You know, it's just kind of plastic and fake and poofy and just sitting on top of their heads. Well, imagine all that hair over the entire body. So I'm sitting there looking at it. And I couldn't discern what exactly what it was. I didn't want to send it around because, I mean, come on, without positive identification, that's just idiotic. 
So I'm looking through this root ball and I start trying to get into better positions, at least, you know, to, to rest my rifle, to observe, to see, because I'm halfway squatting at this point. And uh, I finally ended up laying on laying on the, uh, the creek bed itself, putting my rifle through the actual root ball. And by the time I could have acquired a target, it was gone. Um, man, I didn't hear anything, smell anything, anything like that. It was just, it was just gone. So, uh, yeah, I just kind of hung out for four or five minutes and, yeah, I got out and just kind of walked around and looked at the site and got kind of waited on the guys. I was just trying to rationalize, I guess, with myself that maybe what I saw wasn't what I thought I saw. Maybe it was a bear. Maybe it was, I don't know. Well, considering classic known black bear behavior, I have to say that what you saw was definitively, nearly definitively not a bear because black bears aren't going to sneak around and slink down to the ground and silently make their way through the woods, especially when they know that a predator or a person is coming. Bears amble and their their movement is turbulent. They're loud. They don't try to hide at all. They just run. No, I'm with you. And, you know, I think it was just kind of my, you know, I've been with the, the organization for a while. I've had a few weird experiences, especially in Area X, a few in San Houston National Forest down near Houston. But I was just kind of rationalized, like, what else could it be aside from, you know, our target species? And, I mean, like you said, there's nothing else I could come up with, man. How long did it take you to come to the realization that what you had seen was actually a wood ape? I think it was actually talking to Mike Mays and Rob McCollum about it. And this was your first visual? Is that correct? Yeah, in broad daylight. I did see a couple of eyes in Sam Houston that, that actually made me draw my weapon. And that doesn't happen ever. I've drawn my weapon twice in my life. So it was your first visual, but you only saw uh, just a big black bob. I have to imagine that wasn't very satisfying in the end. It really wasn't, man. I, I was kind of wanting the full frontal, you know, patty, walking, look, vogue a little bit, and then just amble off. That's kind of what I was hoping for, and that's not at all what I got. I think that's what a lot of people that go into Area X, especially for the first time, or especially if they have not seen one of these animals before, they expect to see Patty. They expect to see a large, stocky, eight-foot-tall black ape just casually walking along a creek bed. But the reality is that film is really an outlier because everything that we've seen down in Area X lasts for two, three seconds tops on average. Absolutely. You talk to, you know... Paul Bowman Jr., you talk to um, Helmer, Daryl Collier, I mean, you, for God's sakes. I mean, come on, man. Yeah, we we don't see anything that, that crazy. Yeah, yeah, we don't, unfortunately. So that week was was a, kind of a creepy one for you, because if you consider all of the, like, the biggest events, you had something tapping on a bucket at you, which is weird. You, you had a huge, tremendous explosion on the hooch from something from the mountain tossing an object ostensibly at the hooch, waking you up from your hammock. And you have this weird, creepy black animal slinking around on the ground trying to catch sight of people. Yeah, it was, it was a little unsettling, man. I, I'm going to be honest with you. I'm a veteran. I'm a firefighter paramedic. I still ride the box. I still ride the engine and the ladder truck. I've been in some nasty fires. That that weirded me out worse than than fighting the dragon all day. Yeah, but is it going to keep you from going back? Oh, absolutely not. Yeah, good man. Yeah, that was the coolest thing I've ever seen. I mean, come on, dude. I walk. <laughs> we all do. All right, Dusty. I think that's a great spot to wrap up right there. And well, I appreciate it, Brandon. Yeah. Well, thanks for coming on the show. I appreciate you. Absolutely, sir. It's good to talk to you, man. 
we are at the uh, the annual NAWAC member retreat, and uh, I am joined by my co-hosts. Uh, to my right, I have Brandon Lentz. Hello. Say, and to his right, I have uh, Matt Pruitt. Howdy. And to his right, my left, we have the chairman of the North American Wedding Conservancy, Mike May. Say hey, Mike. Hey, Mike. So I thought what we'd do right now is we'd have a conversation. This is pretty traditional in, in all of the shows we've done in the past where we've we've come to the retreat and we've sort of talked to different members and we've you, you've you've already heard uh, several interviews of members and sort of notable events that have taken over the taken place over the course of the summer. Uh, now's the time for us to sort of reflect, uh, talk about what the what we've learned and, and how we're gonna take those learnings and apply them to this season, twenty twenty. Uh, and uh, so yeah. Matt, you had a new role in the organization this year. You were the what? What was your role? What, what do we officially call you? Field teams manager. Field teams manager. So tell me, what does the field teams manager do? Well, essentially, in terms of building the rosters, or at least uh, setting up the spreadsheets for the rosters to kind of fill themselves, helping decide the scheduling, mm-hmm. and then be the point of contact for all the team leaders and or any team members while they're in the field. If there's anything that they need or if they need to send in updates to update the rest of the group, too, because there might not always be signal in camp to post updates right. to the forum. So. so you're the conduit of getting news out of the valley to the rest of the group. Typically so. Okay. And, you know, that was a, a title that was one of many that were all under Daryl Collier's control and responsibility right. for a long time. When, that we, rested, when we rested control from Daryl, we had to divide up that. Over many people. Yeah. and. A bloodless coup took place, and we... uh, I still don't know how he did it all, because it's a lot to keep in your head. So what I try to do is I I have handwritten notebooks that I keep with me, because just the process of handwriting, who's on what team and what day and where and when, and handwriting their phone, it's like helps kind of that memorization, but also these digital ones. And so I still, you know, I'm going through that process now that the season has ended of still memorizing who was on what team and learning that. So I'm I'm trying to live up to the standard of Daryl's just absolute mastery of like good luck omniscience of <laughs> yeah. the the summer operation his brain is like it just got there's a so a, matt can you tell me what happened on tuesday june 27th at 13 uh, 45 please edit to <laughs> yeah brandon actually what, happened was, <laughs> <laughs> what was his uh, what was what was the biggest challenge you found over the course of the year pulling this off i think the biggest challenge this year let me think about that because the true biggest challenge was trying to get people to go. That's because that that legitimately was with twenty eight people for how many weeks were we out there? It was ten weeks total, so twenty eight people so over seventy days. Staffing the weeks, it's hard to staff. Weeks. Coordinating, yeah, coordinating yeah. teams. A group of sixties, various amounts of vacation time yeah. off, and you know just trying to work it out where as many people as possible. One of the challenges was that we had decided to take an approach that was unique, and that gave rise to the name Variance, and that right. instead of being an unbroken summer season, there were phases. There was a spring phase, a summer phase, into a fall phase. And I think by the time that got announced, it was a little bit close to the actual launch, mm-hmm. and yeah. so I think it didn't fit in with people's presuppositions about when their time off would sure, be. Right. Well, and the, the fall section, the, the one-third that fell in the fall, for example, you know, we got some school teachers like myself. You know, we're out at that mm. point. So a lot of people that might have made a second trip, you know, couldn't. It's more know, difficult. You know, August, September, I'm done. I'm, you know, I'm back at work. And Yeah, I would say if there was a challenge to it, it would be that making a change like that probably has to happen incrementally because it was a bit of an ab- abrupt change to announce so close that we're trying to fill people in these teams in these different times that are outside of the expectation. And so I think we do see that that was more difficult than we thought it might be. And, and part of the cha- I mean, part of the thing is like we... 
And this is what I, w- I was saying to someone earlier. I really like now going in in September because I think September has had, I've had some great activity in September. Really awesome time to be in the valley. You know, not so hot. Um, it's not super cold at night. The leaves are starting to fall down and, and there is something to that. The apes haven't calibrated yet to having less cover. So if, for whatever reason, I think that's a great time to be there. So you're kind of balancing the the behavior of the apes and the, and the the evolution of the habitat over the season with, you know, human schedules and human needs. And, you know, you're dealing with, I mean, how many members do we have at this point? We're approaching 60, I believe. So 60 different individual schedules and trying to make that make sense against what was happening in the Valley. So, so remind me again, how many weeks were we operational and how many folks were actually engaged? I think the initial plan was actually 14 weeks, okay. and we did 10 weeks total okay. of those weeks filled. Just okay. because, you know, if, if a week didn't look like it was going to accumulate people, we'd cancel it early. So there wasn't the risk of one member or two members. Because we don't want know. one member down there. Certainly. That's not something we're looking forward to. I imagine one of the challenges, too, is taking all of these members and their diverse skill sets and fielding an effective team each week while at the same time trying to make their schedules all fit so they can all be down there at the same time as well. I think one of the hard things to be cognizant of is, first of all, I am still the new guy in many ways. And Mm -hmm. so I'm not as uh, experienced with who typically goes on teams with who all the time. And so there's some degree of like letting teams just uh, manifest and you can kind of get the sense like these guys always go in together. Right. And so you you want to spread things out to fill the roster, but at the same time, everyone's got a bit of a buy-in, whether right. that's like, well, hey, this is my best right. buddy that's going. I'm used yeah. to going. So you want to encourage those things. So I think there is trying to be cognizant of well, what's best for filling the rosters, but what comprises the best team. And that's not something that's for me to say that we right. need this guy because he's a great shooter and this guy because he's a great note taker. I mean, it's, it is a volunteer group. And so you have to let those things manifest themselves, but you're hoping that all of those teams will fill. And so I think it does take, cause yeah, there are clicks, little mini clicks, but uh-huh. you, you gotta have that. Cause otherwise it's like, if this guy doesn't go, this guy might not go. Right. And so it's like, yeah, let them be together. You know, well, some but, of these teams have been working together now for 10 years. You know, we've been doing these operations since 2011, 2012, 2011, right? 11, I believe. Yeah, 2011. Yeah. But see, the, the, to me, this, this is what highlights, you know, why hasn't this been done? Why haven't we got this done yet? These are the logistical challenges people don't think about. Right. This is why nobody's done this before. This is why no one's been able to sustain effort over years and years. It's just so hard. If you've ever scheduled, if you've ever had like a retail job and you've been responsible for scheduling people, well, we're scheduling people over the course of all these weeks and you know all these teams and it's just super complicated and at the end of the day we're an all-volunteer organization so you are at the mercy of individual personal like what's happening in their lives and maybe they sign up for a week and then their job changes or someone gets sick or you know they have i mean you never know what's going to happen so yeah it's rough but we, we covered, I think, a pretty good amount of time this, this year. Well, amazingly, too, I mean, to have the number of members that we had over 70 days and some weeks having to be forgone, you know, right. because they weren't filled. 
we had seven very strong visual contacts. Yeah. So that's one visual per every 10 days on yeah. average, which is pretty fantastic. One of the things that we talked about out in Phil is, you know, this was the third year at this new location. Mm-hmm. And so the first year had some interesting highlights, but kind of skimpy in yeah. terms of visual contacts. And yeah. then 2018 was a little bit more interesting. Yeah. And then suddenly with 2019, with the second team being yeah. out in Phil's team. Yeah. They're having visuals, and then those visuals stayed consistent, and then the incursions and the intrusions are coming into camp right. closer and closer. It really so. feels like the heyday of what we were experiencing a couple of years ago. As we've shifted locations, it does seem to have taken a little time, but this year was remarkably active, and much more so than the past couple of years. It yeah. really was. It, it really was, and, and in that way, it's very encouraging and hopefully inspiring to get people to to get signed up and, and get ready to go yeah. this summer. And, we, and we've got a great new crew that um, have come in, gone through training camp, and, and I fully anticipate being full investigator status by summer and yeah. ready to go and help. They're, they're chomping at the bit to go and really think this summer has a lot of possibilities uh, from getting footage to, to the ultimate goal of, of collecting that specimen. Something that you had touched on in your presentation earlier, Matt, was that much of the activity that we experienced this year, we experienced right from camp. So now it really seems like these apes are starting to become more comfortable with approaching our camp and sort of making it part of their environment. So I I have to imagine and I have to hope that our next operation will result in some of the same activity and possibly more. Absolutely. I mean, interestingly, we've upped our game in terms of our thermal imaging abilities. So not only do we have higher resolution thermal imagers that have a higher refresh rate, and so the, the picture is a lot more clear, but they all have onboard recording now. So at the very least, there's no reason that when we have this conversation this time next year, we should have thermal video to review amongst ourselves and to release to the general audience, to our, our listening audience. Beyond that, I don't see any reason why we wouldn't have multiple collection opportunities. At this point, now we did have some hiccups in 2019. Our, our Overwatch weapon from the very first team had to be repaired, so yeah. we were without an Overwatch weapon right. halfway through Delta Week, right? And uh, so we were waiting on that to be repaired. And so collection teams had an interruption in that phase, and so members that might have their own collection weapons brought them in, but right. not everyone had a thermal scope, and so you know, like sight in the thermal. I mean, this is, this is just again, it's an, it's it's. The kind of thing that isn't sexy and, 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 and maybe isn't fun for people to listen or for us to talk about, but the the logistics of, you know, our, our camp is out in the wilderness. And it's not technically wilderness, but it's it's out there, right? It's it's hard to get to. And, and you have a, a set of stuff that you're using to accomplish your mission and things are going to wear out and the environment is rough and... You know, our, our ATN thermals that we've been using for many years, they sort of valiantly have been holding on. Well, this year, no, they had to go. So they've been replaced with these new ones you're talking about, which are phenomenal and amazing and probably should have done it a year ago. And the Overwatch weapon, you know, it's been out in the field for years. And, you know, you just this stuff gets it wears out. And so that's just one other extra layer of logistical management kind of headache stuff that has to be addressed. And. It's just gonna. It's one of the. It's just like the entropy of the universe, you know, uh, is affecting the stuff that we're using down there as well. Part of what we do by putting this out. I mean, obviously, we have an organizational mission to educate. We have an organizational mission to put this information out into the world to help people understand these animals and understand that they're real. But 
part of that's so that's part of why we do this show. But another part of why we do this show is that we want people, we want like-minded people, we want people who are dedicated to helping us answer this question to engage because we have been now operating down there in these these sort of season-long operations. Like I think 2020 will be our ninth year. So tenth year, I think. Tenth right? year. So you're talking about a population of, of individuals. Some of us have been doing this for a long time. Some of us have put a lot of time in. And some of us need to be relieved, you know? Some of us need a little break, you know? And so the part of what we're doing here is is sort of putting a flag up saying, if, if this sounds good to you, if this sounds like something that you're going to dig doing, if you're going to want to go out in the woods and get stinky and possibly have an ape throw a rock at you at some point, like, get, send us a send us a note. Like, go to our website, go to woodape.org and, and apply. Because that's the one thing that, 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 like any other organization, we need talent. And the other thing we need, quite frankly, uh, that you'll be hearing about in a minute, the, some of the new technology we're trying to bring to bear, is we need... Financial resources, and those come from our members. Almost exclusively, our finance, our financial uh, uh, capabilities come from our members. So, as much as we're right now trying to educate people, we're also trying to recruit people. And I think that the 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 influx of new members we've seen. Uh, in fact, our last episode, you you got to, to to listen to some of those folks tell their stories. Um, has to do with the fact that we're doing this this outreach. So, you know, we're an organization. We're going to ebb and flow. We're going to have highs and lows. But but what we really need is we need engaged members. And so part of what we're doing here is trying to get more engaged members. You know, I, I wasn't with the group when you were at the old compound. And what people often refer to as like this huge heyday of activity. Yeah, right. But it really does seem like for the short amount of time that I've been in that we're in the best position ever. Oh, yeah. In that, you know, the, the camp is established. Totally established. There's it's a so structure much better than what there. we had before. I mean. In every way, we are operating at a higher level right now. And, and now the apes are coming And now in the apes are back, F- right? Yeah. So, yeah, we, we, we have um, sort of evolved and become much stronger as an organization over the past couple of years. And the only thing that was missing, primarily, I mean, not entirely, but, but we didn't have the same level of activity that we had had five years ago. Uh, but this year, this year, it really does feel, there were some weeks, that last week that you and I were in there, November team, Brandon, uh, that was that was like good old days, man. That was that was something happening every single day. As you said, how many visuals did we have this year? Seven. Seven visuals that over means, seventy days. So one every ten days. That's amazing on average. So that's you know you can't beat that with a stick. Well, and you know you never know. I mean, maybe the apes got bored with us yeah, in right. the old yeah. compound, and and we've moved. We we put this new camp in the middle of their habitat. Mm-hmm. It's new. It's novel to them initially. A lot of caution. They kind of. I don't have any doubt they observed from a distance, but they kept their distance. Um, and over the last couple of years, they've gotten a little more comfortable. It's become their new normal, but it's different. So, you know, it's exciting. And, and you know, who knows? Uh, you know, little baby apes that were born <laughs> five years ago may be coming into their own and, and becoming those curious juveniles that we sometimes right. speculate about. And there's just so much that it could be attributed to. But yeah, this summer was, was really, it, it was, it was kind of like a throwback summer to, enough, to those early days. Um, and so it's very encouraging. Um, and I think opportunities for footage, for collection, just, just for amassing data. I, I think it's only going to increase. The optimism should be at an all time high because not only are the, the apes more active, but the things that we're going into this year with, the camera array 
the drone project, yeah. better thermal imaging scopes on the rifles and for spotters. We still have the nano tags that we're gonna we're going to uh, get put out, and 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 on top of all of that, we have all of these new members that are bringing fresh perspectives and fresh enthusiasm to the group and fresh ideas Absolutely. as well. We're on top of our game right now. This and might be a good time to cut in the, the interview I did with Ed talking about the, the, the Hadrian project and, and Project Air. So let's cut to that interview now and then we'll come back and talk about the future, 2020 and beyond. So Ed, today you you gave a presentation to to the group uh, talking about what we're calling uh, Operation Hadrian, the the sort of camera wall, and it's it's really interesting to me, and and I think that it would the the listening audience would love to hear more about what we're hoping to do this summer uh, with camera traps. So could you just uh, maybe give us a little background, like how do how do you how did how did we get here? Where did, when did we start talking about this, and what's the genesis? This is one of those things where someone said something, and then someone else said something, so. What's the how do you how do you how do you want to tell the story about how we got to where we are today? Yeah, sure. It's it's kind of evolved probably over the last couple of years. I remember, and, and again, we're um, going back quite a ways here. But I remember a post on our internal forum. I think it might have been done by Dr. Caparella. Um, said that uh, he posted a a white paper about primatologists mm. using camera arrays for. Uh, studying primates and uh, found that kind of interesting. Did a little bit of research on that, and he was, yeah, that it was correct. They're they're starting to use that. Nothing was really said anymore about that for quite a while. Again, this whole process took a couple of years. Um, probably about, I would say, a year later, we started uh, implementing cameras in our current operation again. Which was interesting for us because we had done yeah. Forest Vigil for five years. We had put tons and tons of yeah. time and effort and money into these cameras and then, you know, with no results. So we'd sort of soured on them, but then they sort of snuck back in again. Yeah, um, we feel uh, as an organization that we um, would like to do more than just try to collect a specimen, but we feel like it's our duty to provide as much documentation as we can, even photos, even though that's not going to get this species documented. It could help us to um, further educate the public about these animals. We could learn morphology, um, possibly uh, routes of access. Uh, There's just a lot of things that can be learned. So we didn't want to throw it out of the window uh, totally. Um, I know that we were kind of focused on specimen collection almost solely. I wouldn't say solely, but that was our focus for quite quite some time. But uh, I think some of those older methods are starting to make their way back into the organization, which is good. Uh, um, we have a lot of people in the organization who like to do that sort of thing mm-hmm. because it's, it's their cup of tea. That's right. what they do. And so I think uh, as an organization, we're going we're gonna to start growing in this area, and um, especially with the camera traps uh, about what we're going to be talking about right now. So um, we, we learned that primatologists are starting to use camera traps. Then we start talking about putting more camera traps out in our current area of operation. So what we did last year was we kind of sparsely put several cameras out. Is it like six or eight, something like that? We started out as six, and then we, I think we have about nine out there right now. And we've uh, actually done something that we've never done before, at least we're not aware of it, was that we disabled the IR on all the cameras. Um, So basically we're limited to daytime only. Mm 
um, cameras. And the reason why we wanted to do that was because um, we're possibly under the impression that the wood apes can see some, maybe not all, but some of the IR light. Right. Well, it's not unusual. I mean, uh, someone was saying today that you put a game cam out and during the day you can get pictures of deer walking by. And at night, if you get a picture of a deer, it's almost always looking right at the camera. That 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 IR light is maybe invisible to our eyes, but but animals who have adapted to moving around and being in the forest and at night, especially, they are more sensitive to that near IR. And our our findings, our experiences, tell us that IR light is in some way perceptible by apes and seems to influence their behavior. So, in this case, we just pulled the circuit out. We just pulled the plug on the light. That's basically what, exactly what we did. We uh, completely disabled the IR on, on the cameras and basically we're relying on the daylight photos to get right. what we need uh, out of these uh, out of these cameras. However, trying to find the needle in the haystack hoping yeah. a, an ape would cross by one of the uh, detection circuits of one of our cameras. And so they're spaced uh, throughout the valley. Right. Um, uh, however, um, we kind of wanted to step it up a little bit more this year yeah. and try something a little different. So the way that we're, we're basically, what we did last year was forest vigil part two, where we just, we have these cameras that now have the IR uh, disabled, but they're just sort of scattered around. Yeah. You know, this looks like a good spot. Something goes by here. So we'll put a camera here. And as far as we know, we've collected no images of the target species. That's correct. Um, uh, as far as we know. As as um, yeah. There are some pictures we haven't reviewed yet, but <laughs> right. chances are we have not collected a, an image. And we have have some uh, uh, pictures at night, where they're, right. but are, they're just completely black. Can't see it. Yeah, they're just completely black. And that just goes with what we're doing because we're relying on the daylight photos right. to get us what we need. So, so this year we've been thinking about something different. Yeah, this year what we decided to do instead of just trying to find a needle in the haystack by placing our cameras sparsely uh, throughout the thousands of acres that we're dealing with. And what we decided to do was look at the topography of our area of operation. And one of the things that I noticed um, was that if we want to focus on a particular area, where where would that area be? I started looking at the at the valley that we operate, and one of the places not too far from our area of operation is there's kind of a bottleneck there um, within the uh, within the valley floor. And I was thinking, well, if we wanted to place cameras along the valley floor in a certain area, the, a bottleneck would be a great place to do it because it the natural topography of the land could possibly funnel in mm-hmm. animals from that from various areas um, through the bottleneck. I mean. Most wildlife will take the path of least resistance going from one valley to the next. And there's a lot of wildlife going through the valley. And so what better place to possibly put cameras at, um, except for possibly in a bottleneck? Mm-hmm. And so I, was, I, I got to thinking, you know, how, how are we going to put all these cameras within this bottleneck area? Uh, and what I tried to do was create possibly a an array of cameras that would be as dense as possible that could possibly go across the valley, right. across the valley floor. That's literally what we're talking about. We're trying. We're trying. We're trying. What would it take to put cameras all across the floor of the valley so that literally no animal could go from point A to point B without walking in front of a camera? 
That's correct. And well, you know, cameras aren't cheap and we have a budget to work with. Right. Um, and so, uh, you know, we're trying to get the best bang for our buck on, out of these camera arrays. So what I do is I started playing in, in AutoCAD and start drawing some camera arrays to scale. What I did is I just basically draw the, 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 uh, the uh, camera kind of fans out. Mm-hmm. If you look at it from a bird's eye view, it has uh, a certain fan to it. Um, detection, the detection yeah, field. The, de- the detection zone, correct. So I just kind of drew that to scale. Um, the distance and how far it went out and the angles and everything. And basically started placing those cameras in different configurations. It basically worked with probably about a dozen different configurations Mm -hmm. to find the densest camera array possible uh, to not allow dead space where basically a a zone where um, an animal couldn't get to get detected unless they walk uh, directly through our um, camera array. In other words, uh, you, you could configure a camera, a camera array with a lot of dead zones in it. So the, the, the initial ones you were playing with, you had some of them sort of circular patterns and sometimes they were covering each other, sometimes they weren't. And what was interesting to me is you would say, well, if we had, say, an array of 24 cameras, we would cover this much acreage and this percentage of it would be covered by detection. And uh, as, as you were going through all those different permutations, you eventually settled on something that was actually much simpler than where you started. So what what is what is the sort of current configuration that, that you're playing with? If yeah. you if you can describe it somehow. Yeah, sure. It was a trial and error process. After about twelve iterations of this, basically what we did, uh, I just said, let you know, let's make this as dense as possible. Let's just have the cameras basically facing each other. Right. Uh, say on one tree, you'll uh, have a camera pointing in a certain direction. Say in the north south north south direction, and then um, about 180 feet away, which is 90 plus 90, because the detection zone of this particular camera that we're using is 90 feet. So 90 plus another 90 feet would be 180 feet. So the cameras are facing each other at 150 feet away. Now we can streamline those all the way across the valley and basically create like a picket fence Uh or a wall Uh of cameras Uh all the way across the valley floor. Doing that, you know, when, when you... Uh, do that, we could have a single line of cameras all the way across the valley, and if an animal walks through that, we have the potential of getting their picture taken. Theoretically, and then what we know from Forest Vigil is these cameras theoretically operate the way they say they're supposed to, but they don't actually. Sometimes they take pictures when there's nothing there, and sometimes they don't take pictures when something did walk in front of them. So this picket as efficient as it is from a number of camera standpoint is kind of not efficient from a coverage and redundancy standpoint. So you sort of built upon that. Yeah. The, the single line of cameras is, is good. However, I think it could probably be, uh, optimized a little bit more and have a little bit more redundancy and just put the, the same set of cameras in a line, another set of cameras in a line right next to it in, a, in, a, in another row, except you, you kind of alternate it or offset the cameras. So yeah, they're sort of staggered. Yeah, they're staggered. So, I mean, there's basically no dead area right. or no dead zone that an animal could walk into without getting their picture taken mm-hmm. twice now. Right. Uh, potentially twice. Two chances. Two chances because they're, they're, we, we have two rows of cameras that are only 60 feet away. Mm-hmm. And so now we have double the chance of a animal walking through that zone. If one camera doesn't work, the next camera is going to get them. Right. So that that was one idea it, is to basically stagger the cameras, put two rows of them, basically 60 feet apart, cover the whole valley floor. And now we've got double the chance of right. getting some kind of animal. Well, what's better than double the chance? 
Well, I said, let's take it out one more iteration, one more iteration, and let's try to triple our chances of getting, just in case the first two didn't work, or maybe they were walking diagonally and only went through one or two zones, and and we, we wanted to increase our chances. So bottom line, tell me what our coverage is going to be roughly speaking, because we haven't actually deployed them. Uh, and then how many cameras it'll take to actually do that? Well, basically we're dealing with about 750 feet of valley floor that we have to deal with. And then you got steep slopes on both sides of the valley floor, which we thought would be advantageous because like I said earlier, most animals want to take, take the path of least <laughs> resistance. Uh, and so if they want to go through the valley, and we've seen these, we've seen these uh, wood apes, we've had a lot of contact with these wood apes, a lot of encounters, a lot of incidents, mouth pops. Uh, last year we had a bluff charge. We've seen animals, several animals in this area. So we're, we're thinking about putting the picket line in this area because we've had a lot of activity in that area. That's actually kind of the interesting part because we've, because we were there so long and we've been in sort of this general region of the valley for a couple of years now, the sort of serendipitous part is that where this sort of choke point is, which as much as a 750 foot wide piece of valley can be a choke point is also where we've documented quite a bit of activity, um, visuals, bluff charges, auto, you know, uh, sounds and vocalization. So it's sort of, they just sort of like serendipitously overlap right there. Yeah. I mean, that's a good, that's a great thing. I, I, maybe it's just coincidence. Maybe it's cause we're there. Um, I don't really know, but it, it's going to work to our advantage. Right. Hopefully we're going to try to make it work to our advantage. Right. We're going to use that uh, as a starting point for this camera array system. So what we've done is we basically put three rows of cameras all next to each other. So if an animal walks through it, there's a chance that they're going to get their picture taken at least possibly three right. times. And so that would take a total of about 24 cameras. Right. Uh, we've already got six of, of uh, our organizational cameras. And so we're going to purchase 18 more and uh, use the 24 cameras to basically create three lines of, uh, of cameras across the valley floor. And that's where we get sort of Operation Hadrian out of this is the Hadrian, it's like the Hadrian Wall that Emperor of Rome built to keep the, you know, the northern people of uh, Great Britain from invading uh, Roman England. But so the, the, What's interesting to me is when you were showing the configuration, you were showing the diagram earlier of, of, of your, of your proposed wall of cameras is that if, if they're coming sort of perpendicular to the wall, there's three chances for a photo, but if they're going at an angle, they can go through like the zone of five different cameras all in sequence. And that's just, it kind of blows the doors off of what we were doing in forest visual. Cause forest visual, you had one shot, you know, if it happened to walk in front of your camera, you had to hope that that camera did what it was supposed to do. And oftentimes it didn't. So in this case, we've, we've just basically like, it's a, it's a force multiplier. We're going to, we're going to increase our odds by just doing what the military does, increasing the number of pieces of hardware that we have deployed in the field. Yeah, that's exactly right. Instead of, instead of, um, putting, you know, all these cameras in different locations, we're going to focus and put all of our eggs in one, in one basket, so to speak, all in one area focused in a bottleneck with throughout the valley that we know the animals already use. We've seen them there. We're going to use them in that manner. And also we've had a lot of these animals as, as we're walking down the trail to, uh, throughout the valley floor, we've had a lot of these animals parallel us back to camp and follow us back to camp. So if they're paralleling us back to camp, hopefully they'll be distracted enough Uh to get their picture taken and not even notice that the cameras are there and 
you know, uh, hopefully we'll get, uh, get some great footage. Right. So in fact, your the configuration of your array has a gap in the middle for the road that we walk on sort of the, the trail, it's not really a road, but the, the trail that we walk on actually pierces the wall. And our hypothesis is based on our experience that they're not going to be using the road that much. They're going to be paralleling us, uh, in the Creek beds or in, in the forest line. Yeah, that's correct. Well, uh, what I was thinking is, is, is if we kind of split, split the array at that one point, um, and not put cameras uh, that are looking at each other along the trail uh, so that that will be a, basically a free zone. We won't have any cameras in that area so that when we are uh, uh, walking on that trail going back and forth to, di- to different areas, uh, we won't get our pictures taken, of course, us as humans. Uh, but hopefully we will catch all the wildlife and possibly an ape that is walking sure. back Right. or b- back to camp with us or away from camp. So what I'm excited about is, of course, the possibility of capturing a photo of an ape. It would be, that would be fantastic. But uh, as, as listeners of this show know from a previous episode, from the Citizen Scientist episode, we've collected the audio of what may be a red wolf, which would be a, a, a genuinely interesting discovery because they're not supposed to be there. But theoretically with this, we could ca- we're, we're hopefully going to capture images of every kind of animal that traverses the ground inside that valley. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I, I mean, this doesn't just benefit the wood ape. I mean, this benefits a lot of the different species that uh-huh. we believe there possibly could be within right. the valley floor. Right. And, you know, hopefully we'll capture them too. I mean, it's, it's, we're about conservation. And so, uh, that's what it's all about is, is the wildlife. So another, another interesting side effect of disabling the IR is we've discovered the batteries in these cameras now last forever. They just like, like, I don't even think we replaced the batteries all year long. No, I, in fact, they still show upwards almost at full capacity because, uh, and and the only only thing we can really explain to that is, well, first of all, we're using really good batteries, Uh uh, the lithium style batteries instead of the alkaline. So they're, those, they're automatically going to last a little bit longer. However, we've, uh, our theory is since they're, the cameras aren't using a flash at night, then the possibly the batteries extended much, much longer. In fact, we've gone as far as six months and they're, almost at full capacity. And that's that's one, another benefit of, of disabling IR is we don't need to mess with the cameras that much. Once we get them up, we can kind of ignore them for months at a time because the camera, the, the cards now, again, this is another difference between now and, and when we were doing force visual, card capacity now is tremendous. So you could leave them out there unattended for months and months and months, potentially all summer long. We could touch them in we, when we install them and we can touch them again when we pull them down and leave them alone the whole rest of the time and draw no extra attention to them, which is really interesting. Yeah, as far as I know, we haven't really downloaded any pictures from the cameras. We haven't really downloaded any pictures from the cameras in almost probably four or five, six months. Yeah. I, mean, I mean, if we can do that two or three times a year, um, I think that's, that's a great advantage. You know, I think that's right, because I think I was on the team where we got them in September, and we haven't touched them since then, and they're still at 99%. Yeah, and, and another great thing with only having to go out there a couple times a year is you don't affect... You don't affect the laboratory. It's right. you know we, we right. let it let it let it do its thing and not mess with them because when you keep going back toward to these cameras and that makes the area look suspicious and so right. we don't want that to happen. And the other the other uh, interesting thing that we we did this year is we we have a member who has uh, done this amazing camouflage job on the camera bodies themselves using native barks. And then we put those cameras on the native trees. And so when they, when they sort of sit out in the environment long enough, they get wet like the tree does. I mean, they just sort of disappear. And I didn't know where those cameras were. And I walked by them. I I just, I could not see these cameras. It's, it's, they're, it's, it's really impressive. Just artisanship on top of anything else. I mean, they, they look beautiful. 
Yeah, one of our members um, did a tremendous job of camouflaging this with the natural bark of the surrounding trees in that area. And of course, we try to match up the best looking camera with, you know, the best looking bark with that certain tree. And honestly, if if you didn't know the camera, I mean, if you weren't looking for the camera and somebody telling you where it was, you probably wouldn't never know it was even there because yeah. it's camouflaged so, so well. Yeah. And that just goes, you know, a step further than uh, what we had done in the past. Right. And uh, ho- hopefully it's going to reap some results for us. Yeah, hopefully. What I get excited about when you talk about this project is that uh, this is something that I think is, is uniquely the product of the NAWAC. Because you think about the fact that we're building on five years of forest vigil and five years of sort of collective experience with camera traps in general. And then you're you're building on the fact that we have been in this area for, well, gosh, like 20 years now. We've been in this, in this valley off and on. And, and for the past 10 years, quite quite heavily. So we know the area very, very well. We have a minimum a decade of interaction with apes in this area. So we, we have a really good understanding of sort of where they are, of what the, what the landscape is like. And then you layer on top of that your skills. You know, we have we have someone like you, an engineer in the group, who can play around with these configurations and, and sort of build this for us. We have these other guys who can do this incredible craftsmanship to hide the cameras. And then we have a, a robust membership and their dues that give us the resources to put this together. So it's sort of a, a perfect example of what the NAWAC can do that I don't know that anyone else can because I don't think that like, no one else has our scale. No one else has our has our focus like this. It's it's just it kind of blows me away and when I think about it, because I, I don't know anybody else who could do this. Yeah, it's it's definitely a team effort. It's it's not a one man show, um, and we're building on uh, the experience of what other primatologists are doing, mm-hmm. um, and basically uh, building on the skills that each individual has within the organization to go out there and 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 make a project work and make it come to pass and hopefully see it come to fruition. Right. And it may be, it may be that, you know, this time next year we'll be at the retreat and we'll be talking about Hadrian and how, gosh, there are no pictures. And, and that's entirely possible. You know, we don't know what's going to happen, but at least this is a, an organization that will just keep trying, you know, new things. And so even though a lot of us old salts had sort of like written off camera traps, the great thing about having new people is some of those old ideas can sort of come back out and get, get freshened up like this. It's pretty cool. The other piece of, of sort of technology, the other sort of tech project we're working on for 2020 uh, is what we're calling Project Air. Can you give us a description of, of, the, of the hardware we're going to be deploying this year and, and its capabilities? Yeah, Project Air. Air stand, is an acronym for Airborne Infrared Reconnaissance, and it kind of fits for, for what we're going to try to do. Is basically, there's been a lot of a lot of updates in the thermal imagery technology over the last few years and making it a little bit more affordable and easier to get a thermal camera on a drone and up in the air. It used to be several years ago, five, six years ago, that you would have to modify a thermal camera to put it on a drone to get it up in the air. And basically what the technology has done over the last two or three years is allow these thermal cameras that are very, very small with very high resolution to be able to be configured for the drones that are on the market already. And now we can use those drones, put them up in the air, have thermal capability for both night and the day to possibly pick pick up heat signatures where we can go and investigate a particular area of our target species. The sort of the older approach you're talking about 
that was, it was, I mean, it was basically hobbyist level. They were taking small, um, thermal cameras and sort of adapting them for drone use, sort of literally like soldering them onto consumer level drones to see if they worked. And then you were telling me earlier, like the drone manufacturers and FLIR figured out, oh my God, there's a market here. We should probably get together and try to make this work. Yeah. Basically all the, all the people who were using all the drones were buying these small cameras for, from FLIR that were being used for other different purposes. And basically the geeks were <laughs> hardwiring these things and, you know, cutting wires and soldering stuff onto their drones and putting it up, uh, putting it up in the air like that, um, with, you know, work, working around the, the, the situation to make it work. And basically FLIR and DJI had come together in, uh, in a joint venture and said, Hey, you know, we can provide thermal imaging to drones if we just work together on this and not try to work against each other. And so what they did is they actually came together and they made a enterprise level thermal imaging system for law enforcement, fire and rescue, so that uh, government agencies in that type of situation can afford to put thermal drones in the air and get high quality uh, data back to the ground to where they need it. It's basically a step down from what you might find in the military, but it's about as good as you're going to get and not be in the military or, or some like high level of law enforcement. This is, this is just about the best technology that you're going to be able to find today. Yeah. To my knowledge, uh, the drone that we we've purchased is one of the best on the market. In fact, I don't know of a better version, uh, of a drone that can do what it can do. So what's the, what model do we have? Yeah. It's a DJI Matrice 210 V2. The V2 stands for version two. It's basically an enterprise level thermal drone that you basically you can put uh, different payloads on it. A payload just means a, a different camera. You can put flashlights or uh, excuse me, spotlights on it. So basically you can put different cameras on the model mm-hmm. uh, that suit your need basically. Mm-hmm. So we have, we have the thermal camera on sort of the, the left pod. I don't know what you call it, but on the left side and on, on the, on the a gimbal, right. And on the other gimbal, you have, uh, an actual camera and a vis- like a visible light camera. Tell me about that one. Yeah. Uh, the visible light camera is a, actually it's called the Zenmuse Z30 and it, it has a, basically a 30, um, optical zoom, uh, on the camera. So basically it's like a, it's like a spotting scope in the sky. Right. Uh, and so if we see a heat signature with a thermal gimbal attached flying over a certain area, then we can investigate that area with the, uh, high powered zoom lens. So basically if we're doing a, a reconnaissance during the day, we see a heat signature we want to investigate that heat signature for, uh, further. We switch over to the high-powered zoom camera, zoom in, we can actually see what it is down there on the ground. Basically, uh, so for example, if we're 300 feet in the air, we can zoom down, and uh, if we zoom up to 30 power, it's like we're 10 feet above the subject. Right. And you were showing some examples at our presentation today of, I mean, you were flying above here where we are, the KBRS, and you could zoom down and we were able to read logos on hats and we could see in and one of the crazy, one of the members was walking around with a cup and he had a beverage in the cup and you could see the beverage sloshing around yeah. in the cup and you were like 250 feet up in the air. Yeah, it was, it was, it was, it was, ca- cool. it was kind of humorous actually, <laughs> kind of humorous actually because we were up there, you know, looking down and yeah, you could almost see the, see the logo on their, on their hat and almost re- be able to read the logo. If I didn't know what it said, I could almost read it to you. Right. But uh, yeah, it was, it was, it was kind of neat to see how that, technology can can work so far away but i mean get down and really pinpoint uh what you're looking at with great detail which couldn't was which was not possible uh several years ago no every drone that we've flown in there and i've flown a couple of drones in there but they're all sort of like 
consumer, not even like, I think, you know, the, the Mavic that I had in there was maybe prosumer, but still it was, it's consumer stuff. Nothing like what we're deploying now. I mean, this stuff is like light years ahead of what we've had in, in, in the Valley before. And the capability and how fast the, this technology is evolving in the drone space just completely blows me away considering that just a few years ago, it just didn't exist, you know? And so the other thing we were testing out is we had one of our members uh, in the woods next door and we could track him with the thermal, see him clearly walking around. And when we'd switch over to the, to the camera, he would just blend in. So this is another example of how you use both of these technologies to sort of seek and identify all of these cameras we're viewing in real time, all of these cameras we record video off of. So whatever we see, we can record and, and just add to our documentation. Yeah, exactly. And, and that was the, the purpose of, of getting a, a, a drone in this fashion was to be able to identify the heat signature uh, because we couldn't necessarily uh, focus on it with a, with a regular camera. However, if we see the heat signature up in the air, then, you know, uh, then we can investigate that further either by sending either a ground team in there or possibly trying to get a visual uh, uh, side of it with, with our optically, uh, with the zoom camera, right. uh, zooming into it. So yeah, it's, it's amazing technology actually. Yeah. It's kind of a game changer. I mean, it's, it's still, you know, the application in the Valley when, when the leaves are, when the trees leaf out, uh, later in the year, uh, we're going to be kind of limited in, in following the waterways where the, where there's some openings, but I mean, we, we believe the apes use them anyway. So there's, even though there will be, we won't be able to see necessarily to the forest floor in all places. I still think there's going to be enough opportunity for us to, to see animals in their natural habitat. Other thing I wanted to say is yesterday when we had it up in the air and it was like a 250, 300 feet, whatever it was, it was kind of quiet. Like it, it wasn't really noticeable to us on the ground at that altitude, even though we could still see what was inside the guy's cup. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, it's great technology. It's just another tool in the tool bag. We're going to, we're going to, but we're going to try to use it to our, you know, to our advantage. Right. Um, try to see them in their natural habitat doing something, possibly uh, be able to do that. Um, if we get a photograph of one, that would be excellent to be able to do that, especially if it's zoomed in. Um, it would uh, really change uh, a lot of people's minds on this subject. Mm -hmm. It won't necessarily document the species, right. but it will help people along the way who maybe have uh, second thoughts about the yeah. subject. It's a really good point. I mean, we don't believe for a second that that the Hadrian Project or or Air, either even even if both of these projects are successful and we 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 capture documentation, uh, neither of them are going to prove the animal. the The point, though, at this is sort of like if you go back to to uh, to Forest Vigil, the the point of that project wasn't to document the animal to science either, but it was to if you could present and create really good evidence that would help sort of shake loose some people who might be on the fence. You might be able to draw all of the work we've been doing with the with the monograph and with tag 7 and everything else we have we have drawn in some really high powered minds into this group in the past couple of years so if we can keep producing that kind of evidence it just helps us to eventually accomplish our goal of documentation so that this animal can be recognized and protected yeah i think every little piece of evidence that we bring forward uh, just strengthens what we're doing as an organization. Um, uh, to my knowledge, I don't think there's as, I don't know of any organization who's doing what we're doing in terms of, uh, uh, the efforts in terms of, of like the camera rays, uh, uh, the project air project, uh, with, with, uh, thermal imaging in the air also with, uh, 
trying to collect a specimen. I mean, what, what the NAWAC is doing is is far and beyond any other organization that I know of yeah. uh, in the history of the subject. It's a good point. I mean, it's, it's not part of either of these two projects, but over the course of the last year, we replaced our thermal units with a new generation of thermal uh, sites for our rifles. And these devices have the ability to record what they're seeing, to stream it to phones. The, the, I believe, I'm saying this correctly, that the technology of these scopes would allow someone in cell service to stream live to the internet what they were seeing through their rifle scope, which is kind of crazy. We can't do that because we don't have reception down there. But again, uh, that is another op- option, another opportunity for documentation of, of visuals. I was just talking to uh, to Alton and Jaybird a minute ago about uh, a visual they had through Thermal. Uh, Daryl is also on the show talking about a similar opportunity. It, now, if those happen, we would be able to record those that would go into our vault of, of evidence and for you know later interpretation or to help, again, as I said, uh, get more people uh, uh, on our side and, and helping us with our mission. You know, even after we collect that specimen that we, that we so dearly want, um, we don't know how we're going to necessarily study these animals in the future, but mm-hmm. I think it's going to have to be done with technology similar to this right. to be able to study these animals in the future. So uh, I think it, it behooves us to, to learn the technology in terms of, of, of thermals, uh, high-powered zoom cameras, right. anything that can possibly help us in the future to gain an insight to the to what these animals' uh, daily lives are all about mm-hmm. um, because they're so elusive uh, that they are, are extremely hard animal to pursue, uh, to find. Once you do find them, they're, they're still hard to, uh, uh, hard to um, research. And so hopefully all these tools in our tool bag will help us research in the future and uh, hopefully technology will be our, on, our, on our side in the future to help do that. Yeah. Yeah. Well said. Thanks so much for your time, Ed. I appreciate it. Thank you. See, I really enjoy talking to Ed about all that new tech that we're going to be uh, deploying over the course of, of the coming season. Talk about the, like, so last year variants, we had this sort of seasonal approach. This year, the operation is called what? We're calling it Operation Trinity this year as there's three phases. One of the things that seemed to happen as a consequence of these breaks that we took in the season is that when we would return to the valley, there would be increased activity it seemed like so maybe some break in the stimulus is beneficial for them so we have a five-week phase and then a two-week break another five-week phase a two-week break and then a final five-week phase so the summer operation will be a total of 15 weeks with two two two-week intervals in between sure two one of the things that we talked about is learning from the past and i think there's a little bit of this hoping to refine and not necessarily reinvent old ideas, but to continue refining and building upon these old systems that we figured out. Like the fact that the things don't seem to be very good at tracking multiple people and these repeated observations that we get as a result of that. And so trying to different versions and variants of that same particular tactic, but also all these new methods too, the camera array, the drones. And so that's a really good example. I think that, I think that the Hadrian project in, in particular is, something that is a good example of new members bringing in a fresh perspective on an idea that a lot of the old salts in the organization felt like we had just beat to death over five years with, with, with Forest Vigil. So we still have that foundation of learning from Forest Vigil, but these new ideas. So taking out the IR, creating this, this wall of cameras across the entire valley floor to, to try to capture all wildlife movement as, as it goes up and down that valley, that's just that's just crazy exciting. We're gonna throw every rock we've got in our pocket. We're mm-hmm. gonna go. We've got cameras. 
we're going to have nano tags. We've got the drone. Uh, we have these incredible new thermals. We're taking everything basically that we've ever tried. We're going to try it all. We're, we're going to have multiple projects, I guess you could mm-hmm. call it, going simultaneously, hoping something figuratively sticks to the wall. You know, you, we're throwing everything we got to see what sticks. And uh, it, it's exciting to think about. It's a little daunting to think about the logistics of keeping up with so much, but I, I have no doubt that we're up to it. I think we had a great conversation in there about, again, things that we've seen happen time and time again that are happy accidents, let's say, like the fact that they seem to have trouble keeping track of multiple humans and that leading to observations and then trying to standardize that. Okay, how do we turn this into a protocol? Mm -hmm. How do we tell team members, like, when you are a mobile team, here's how you act, here's what you wear, how you become visually identifiable to your teammates. And then to shooters, where do you go? Where do you post up? What polar direction do you stay facing? And so, yeah, removing just that one, two seconds of doubt from the shooter's mind about what he's seeing or who he thinks he might it might be he's seen. If we can, and Brian, I think, is one who said it this way, if we can remove that from the equation where he knows instantly that's not one of us. I mean, maybe those one, two seconds, that's the difference. Maybe we get it done just because of that. I'm sure this happens every year, but it seems to me like things like this, this discussion is kind of the blending of tradition, which is taking these things that have played themselves out over time and Mm -hmm. refining it and innovation, Mm -hmm. you know, and carrying that into 2020. Here's a bunch of new solutions that haven't been or a bunch of new uh, attempts at solutions that haven't quite been tried yet. But to your point, using camera traps and using things from the past that we're now refining and standardizing. So there's a bit of this traditional element, too. So it's yeah. kind of the old and the new in this blending of the best of. In with the past few years, our focus sort of shifted away from gathering all kinds of data and was solely focused on obtaining that specimen. And while that is incredibly important, I've always been fascinated in behavior and tracking. I thought the TAG project was incredible. And now this year that we have the gear and we have the people to implement the gear, we're going to be trying everything. So our focus is not only on that specimen, but it's about learning behavior and gathering as much data as we can along the way. And that's why I'm really excited. Yeah, I think if we're successful with the thermals or this camera array, thermals being the handheld, the rifle scope and the drone. I mean, there's always been a public hunger for images. I'm hungry for images. Mm -hmm. I want to see what these things look like. I haven't seen one yet. And so we talk often about we gotta fix that. That's never gonna go away. And post discovery, it's only going to amplify. And they're not gonna be any easier to see or pursue or find or film yeah. or photograph after they're discovered. It made the point that assume we're successful with the with the specimen collection in 2020. You can't observe these animals the way you can observe other primates. They're not gonna let you do that. The only way you're going to observe them, the only way you're going to collect real behavioral data is through technology because you can't just sit like Jane Goodall did and and let them come to you. They're not going to do that. So you have to deploy drones. You have to deploy camera traps. You have to deploy all kinds of things. And so in a way, we are simultaneous to trying to like conclusively establish the animal as, as being existent on the planet. We're also blazing a new trail in how those who come after us or those who come and are working beside us in the future are going to have to do it. 
And so uh, what we're doing here, I think, is, is, is both useful now as we're trying to elicit as much help as possible in our, in our, in our challenge, uh, but is going to have to be figured out once these animals are established because they're not going to be studied any other way. Certainly. I mean, there was a, a good conversation that I can't remember if it was one of the new members who brought it up. Like, well, what do we do post-collection? Right. And if you think of it just from an image standpoint, right. okay. <laughs> what are we going to go look for after this? Well, right. if right. you think it just from images and you wanted to, to pick a target, you know, a specimen is a very specific target. So right. let's say that your image is footage or photographs of one of these things eating, feeding. Right. That might take a decade. Right. That might take more, you know, or two of these things interacting or grooming right. or one interacting with its young. I mean, there's so many oh challenges gosh. ahead the, of us that the, won't be any easier, that will still take decades, you the, know. What we will learn from the specimen will be just unbelievable. I mean, things we can't even conceive of. But what goes beyond the physical of the animal, how do they live? What do they eat? What is their social structure? How do they breed? Like, how long do they? How long do the young stay with the mothers? Like, there's all these things that are complicated primate social behavior and, and any kind of animal's uh, just sort of existence in, in, in its habitat, that they're all giant question marks right now. We think we have sort of like a rough outline of an idea about how they operate, but even that is based on our biases and, and the things that we've experienced around our camps in the way we have specifically interacted with them. So there are hundreds, thousands of questions that can only be they can only be answered by direct observation, except this is not an animal that will allow you to directly observe them. It's just not going to happen. Certainly. Having that conversation with people and saying, look, if we just kept doing what we were doing with no long guns and cameras, we would still be against all the same challenges. And it would right. still take, we'd still have our work ahead of us for decades and for the next generation of NAWAC members and the next generation and the next generation. So, yeah, solving this one problem generates a whole new slew of right. questions that won't be any easier to answer. So yeah, I, I, I think, think we're ahead the of the resources curve. to work with though will increase dramatically. Dramatically, <laughs> dramatically. Oh, absolutely though. And at that point, uh, what I hope is what we've done up to collection will provide a head start to these people who now they're bringing their resources, their financial resources, their equipment, their all of that sort of thing. They lean on us we show them what we've done, how we managed to do this, and they're not starting from ground zero. They're getting a little bit of a head start, and, and maybe we accelerate that learning curve a little bit. And maybe with increased resources, it doesn't take a decade. That's my hope. And I, I, I do feel strongly that we are going to have a role in that because we will be the only ones who've ever managed to do this. Mm -hmm. And we know, I have no doubt in my mind, we know more about these animals than anybody on the planet. Yeah. I truly believe that. I, I'm not, that's not a toot our own horn kind of a thing. I just think that's factual. And I think we have a lot of good data, a lot of good information to share once someone's willing to listen. Well, we're in a great position, too, because now we've got an infusion of talented new members, the most advanced shelter and camp that we could possibly have. Mm rife with new tools and technology. We've got audio recorders. We're going to have dozens of, of, of cameras. We're going to have the, the drone. It'll have a, a 30 times optical zoom plus its own thermal capabilities. We're going to have two brand new high resolution 
uh, Wi-Fi enabled recording thermal sights on our on our collection cam on our collection rifles. Uh, it's just it's it's sort of an it's sort of crazy. And I, I was thinking today when I was talking to Ed uh, about air and and the drone that that we're that we are fortunate enough to have to employ down there. I think I brought the first drone down there about five years ago. And that thing is like a crackerjack toy compared to what we have now. The, the, the technology is evolving so quickly in that mm. space. You know, if we get from where I, what, that little dumb little drone that I took in there five years ago to what this like fire breathing like monster that we have right now, what's it going to be in five years? I mean, we got, I, I, I can't even conceive of it, right? I really literally cannot conceive of what it, how they will be advanced in five years. It's just so amazing that this group can, can bring the resources to bear to make these things real. You know? Absolutely. We just don't sit on the internet talking about, wouldn't it be great if you could do X? I've done that. I spent a lot of time doing that. But the mm. NAWAC says, wouldn't it be great if we could do X? And then somebody says, oh, well, we can. Because I can do this part, and you can do that part, and we can actually make this thing happen. Certainly. That's unique. It's incredibly, it's never unique. happened before. Right. I don't think we talked about it before, but the presentation that I gave at the 2017 members retreat was a history of every funded Brigfoot project right. up until now. And all of them, some of them had a lot more money than this group and did a hell of a lot less, you know, right. a fraction of what this group does being self-funded. So it's, there's never been an effort like this. I've said it so many times in interviews and I mean it. There has never been in the history of this subject an effort as strong or as coordinated as this. And it's just to your point to sit and think about everything that we're going into this with now. Right. Not only are we well prepared, but we're in the right spot and clearly with the right people. Right. The commitment level's really amazing. It, it's pretty inspiring actually. And and everybody that comes in doesn't stick. I mean there there's a, a certain rate uh, ratio of people who who come in and 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 stay and and those who kind of fade away, but those who have stayed through the years, the commitment level is just you know it's unbelievable. And one great thing about the retreat, you got guys who are bringing their wives, mm-hmm. um, who are, are fully on board as well. They may never set foot in the valley, but but they're supportive. You know, you know that can be a really a huge obstacle for someone that wants to to do this seriously if if they have an uh, an unsupportive partner. And it's great to see these guys bringing their wives, significant others, so they can see what this is really all about. And you can, you can watch the evolution on their faces from the moment they first walk yeah. in and they're a little unsure about what's going on. Yeah. And as they sit through the presentations, as, as they, they start to learn Okay, these these people aren't crazy. You know, these mm-hmm. this is this is legitimate scientific stuff these guys are, are are trying to do here. And I think they all leave here feeling better and, and they're they are much more uh supportive and and that just uh that just helps everything. We couldn't ask for a more committed membership and that that's what we're looking for. We're looking for new people to, to come in and join us and come and, and stick and, and let's get this done and uh, we need like-minded people. We need boots on the ground. And we want help in getting this done. Certainly. One of my favorite parts of, of, of the retreat is the, the new guys. There's always a batch of new guys. There's an especially large batch of them this year. And I think a especially qualified batch of them this year. I'm really impressed by the by the new membership. We put a lot out on the podcast, but you can't put everything out on the podcast. So what they see in this event is they see all of it. 
you know, everything that we can say, we spend all day long sharing information mm-hmm. about, you know, things that happened this year. And then just the, the time socializing and all of the stories and you really get the, and it's like just watching them like, this is so much deeper than I thought it was yeah. right? because right. you just, you can't, all we can do on these podcasts is scratch the surface. Yeah. We're just like, we're just stone skipping. Well, can, you've been involved in the subject for a long time, you know, mm-hmm. and, uh, can you imagine when you first got into the subject, if you had found a website and listened to something and you applied Oh my head and you went into a room and right. heard these conversations right. in this caliber. Of this is all I wanted. You'd man. be like, when I started the Bigfoot forums, uh, 156 years ago, I think it just, it, that's next month. <laughs> it was in papyrus. Uh, it was. Yeah. <laughs> the, the forums, they, a lot of people don't know this. Some of the younger kids, I'll tell you how it works is you would tie messages to pigeons and that's how the forum worked. And the more pigeons you had, the more members you get. It was great, but it, there's a lot of pigeon crap after a while. Anyway, uh, all I wanted to do was talk to people about this subject. I just wanted to talk to people about it mm-hmm. and to find myself, you know, low these many years later, surrounded by people who I could talk to about this for a week. Right. I mean, we, and we still wouldn't have said everything is just, it just blows me away. And to think, yeah, to, you know, to put myself in that position, that's where I was in 2001, right. To, to somehow imagine that that position is today and I could just drop into this, like, just add water, fully baked, boom. There's like 80 guys around me, and they've all been hanging out with wood apes for a decade. I don't know what I would do with that. I just That just blows me away. You know, I had an experience, and I started gathering information to try to figure out what that experience was. Mm-hmm. And when it first kind of clicked was about 2002, you know, and I started gathering Bigfoot information. And I remember seeing a few things online and getting a few books and mm-hmm. thinking, oh my God, right. they are so close right. any day now. <laughs> and so you go through this period of like unbridled naivety and optimism. And then this period of like, just like a slow descent into cynicism. Right. You know what I mean? And I can honestly say like with this group, having been through all that. And then again, this familiarity with all of the funded projects and things that have come before, like, there's a genuine real feeling now right. of like, oh, my God, we're so close. No, and, and it's it, it's not just unbridled optimism right. or naivety. And it's not, you know, it's an informed, like, let's go get them. Right. We're so close. It's a combination of all kinds of things. And, I, and I, you know, Daryl gave a presentation today of all the near misses, quote unquote, the near misses. And it's all of the all of the instances over the years. Uh, and I think he had like 12 of them on his list. And he probably could have added one or two others uh, along there. But all of the case, all of the areas, the times when we were sometimes literally a quarter of an inch away from from establishing this animal as as real to everyone else in the world. And, you know, we're humans. And I think it's 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 natural to become cynical when you keep banging your head against something and it doesn't happen. But the reality is, you know, that that feeling of, oh, my gosh, we're so close. We are so close. We have, we have been literally this close. I'm holding my fingers very close together. You can't see me, but we have been this close on a number of occasions. And some folks who are listening to this might go like, well, why haven't you done it? Like in, in frustration, because it's hard. If it was easy, it would have been done 200 years ago. This is really hard what we're doing. Yeah. And it requires an incredible level of effort and dedication and resources and everything to even get to the point where you're a quarter of an inch away. So it's going to happen. It is absolutely going to happen because in 2019, we had a near miss in 2020. We'll have at least one more, 
But one of these days, it's not going to be a miss. Well, it's, it's the old saying, those apes have to be lucky every time. We just have to be lucky once. Exactly. And I, that's going to happen. I've been in the group for five years now, and going into this next operation, I feel that we are closer than we have been since I joined. We've mm-hmm. got brand new technology. We've mm-hmm. got tools. We've got talent. Yeah. Now, all that we need is just a little bit of luck on our side, yeah. and we'll get it done. And I feel like we're closer than we've ever been. Yeah. And damn it, I'm feeling lucky. Having gone through this emotional roller coaster of this over the years, the optimism I feel I know is coming from a place of just absolutely being fully informed and aware. And it's it's like not naivety. It's not just like wishful thinking. It's like well, you know, my holy cow. <laughs> my background's in coaching. And there were ball games in the past where I've gone into it. I knew we weren't ready. I knew what was coming, right? You know, it, it and it was it's a bad feeling. And but there were other times. And thankfully, there were more of these times than, than the other, where I knew we were ready, and I didn't know if we were going to win. I can never guarantee that. But I knew we were going to give those guys all they wanted yeah. today because we were ready. And that's the feeling I have right now going yeah, into totally. this summer. We're ready. Maybe it doesn't happen, but it's not going to be because the groundwork hasn't been done, the prep work hasn't been done, the commitment level isn't there. We're ready. We're going to give them. Oh, like yeah. said, we're going to throw everything we have at them. And I had that same feeling of optimism. I know we're going to perform well this summer. One of the things I've said many times after that discovery in 2002 that, oh, my God, we're so close. This year I gave the talk, you know, and said I, I that was 18 years ago. Like, I do not want to have this conversation 18 years from now. I want to be having a different conversation. I don't want to say. We'll get them next year, guys, 18 more times, you know, in my life. And so I do feel like preparedness is at an all-time high. Optimism, effort, enthusiasm, desire, hunger, you know, all of that, those fires are are raging right now. Well, this was awesome. Uh, I love this session. This part of this episode at this event is always one of my favorites. So uh, I just want to thank you guys for spending the time to, to hash this out with us. Thank you very much. It's much appreciated. Thanks. That's a wrap. Well, that is it, folks. I hope you enjoyed that ride. That is the show for this month. If you'd like to know more about the organization, you can find us at woodape.org. You can also apply for membership there as well. We can also be found on Facebook at North American Wood Ape Conservancy. If you did enjoy this show, please rate and review it wherever you receive your podcast from. And if you know somebody who might have an interest in this subject, please share this with them as well. We just heard from seven different people who were lucky enough to catch visual sight of an animal that most do not believe to be real. An animal that mainstream science still has not accepted. An animal that at this point is a living legend. And when you catch sight of a living legend, your mind doesn't automatically know how to process that information. And that very feeling is what our next episode will be about, so please... Stay tuned.
He would rest his feet Down at the church house Come harvest time It always get in late It'd be back in the fields By daybreak He wore overalls And a wide-brimmed old straw hat To keep the Texas sun Off his neck and back East Texas sun was a working man No matter how hard he'd scrub his hands That red Texas clay wouldn't wash away This part of his soul It moved through his veins Lay beneath his cradle He covers up his grave High up on a ladder at the cotton gin A wrong gay way and he met that clay again He broke his back And he couldn't work no more He spent his last few weeks In a wheelchair by the door Staring out at the cotton He wasn't worth That red Texas clay wouldn't wash away It was part of his soul It moved through his veins It lay beneath his cradle It covers up his grave In the churchyard there's a stone standing in the clay Engraved on that stone are the words that say, Here lies a working man. No matter how hard he scrub his hands, that red Texas clay will never wash away. Part of his soul, it moved through his veins. He lay beneath his cradle, it covers up his grave. He lay beneath his cradle, it covers up his grave.